Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, I've never really been 100% sure what I've wanted to do professionally. That's not entirely true. I've always had some vague, not, not even vague, but I've always known I wanted to do something in the media, but at different times in my life that's taken different forms. Uh, maybe television, uh, maybe talk radio, maybe being an MC, maybe something in politics, uh, maybe uh, maybe something in film. You know, I've always had an idea of the kind of fields that I'd like to try to make a living in. But more so, but on the one hand, while I've never been quite sure what I've wanted to be professionally, I've always known what I wanted to be, period. What does that mean? Well, what I've always known from the time that I was old enough to be self-aware is that I've always wanted to be considered one of the great New York characters. There are all these wonderful New York characters that are locally known, and some are, you know, some are infamous, some are just plain old famous, some are celebrated, some are denigrated, and they're not really known in the rest of the country. See, in California, they ha- in Los Angeles, they have Angeline. In New Jersey, they have Uncle Floyd. And in New York, we have a wide variety of New York characters. People like uh, Dr. Zizmore, who you'd see on the subway. People like uh, Bernard Getz. People like Curtis Lewa. But uh, people like Ed Koch. But by far, in my judgment, the greatest New York character of all time was the one and only Joe Franklin. Joe Franklin was a legendary TV and radio talk show host uh, whose career uh, spanned about 70 years, and that is not an exaggeration. And he was a very close friend of mine, and yesterday was his birthday. And it's only an hour into today, or maybe two, midnight to one. Yeah, it's only an hour into today. So I've spent the whole day thinking about Joe Franklin on, um, he was born in 1926, so this would have been his 96th birthday. And Joe was a very, very, very close friend of mine and a tremendous influence on my style of broadcasting and what I find engaging. Now, those of you that know Joe, either from TV or from radio or from his work as an MC, you know how unique he was and how special he was. But for those of you that don't know Joe, um, you 
you really are missing out because Joe was the he was somebody who um almost was so difficult to describe. So he was on television every day from 1951 to 1993 in New York. One of the longest running uninterrupted careers in broadcasting history. He's interviewed more than 50,000 people over the years. Uh, so from 1951 to 1993, for the beginning of that tenure, from 1951 to 1962, he was on Channel 7 in New York. And then um, that was originally WJZ. And then it became WABC. And then he moved from Channel 7 to Channel 9, which was WWOR. And he was on there until 1993. And then he stayed on WOR Radio 7, 10 a.m., where he would do a great show every Saturday morning from midnight to 5 a.m. and until 2004. And from for many years, literally up until a couple of weeks before he died, he was on Bloomberg Radio, and he was just terrific. He broke all the rules in terms of broadcasting. The guy was hilarious. The guy was an icon. You knew Joe spent his whole life without leaving a fourteen um, a fourteen block stretch of Manhattan. Pretty much. I mean, he went uh, elsewhere occasionally, but he was a guy that loved this city, lived this city, and was such a defining characteristic of what made New York, New York. Now, because uh, Joe was so, um, so, um, was so synonymous with New York, he was frequently asked to play himself in movies and television shows. Because if a movie was set in New York, usually you'd want Joe Franklin in it to show that it was New York. And, I'll never forget the movie 29th Street, where Joe Franklin plays himself. And this is was really happened with the very first New York State lottery. And it's a great film, by the way, with Danny Aiello, among others. And the very first New York State lottery, which Joe Franklin actually was the person that read the winning lottery numbers for. And he actually makes that movie. And recently, when I did my Rayo's drawing... When we picked a winner for Rayos, I satirized Joe, I don't know if anybody knew it, from the film 29th Street. This is Joe in the movie 29th Street playing himself in something he actually did in real life. You follow? So the movie 29th Street, you know it if you've seen it, it depicts uh, the, uh, I won't get into the whole story, but it depicts the very first New York State lottery And Joe was the person that read the winner of that lottery, and they recreated it for the film. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Memory Lane himself, Joe Franklin. Okay, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. The big moment has arrived at long last, the very first New York State lottery. The Empire States, with some lucky... A person receiving $6,200,000, the very first in New York State. I know the excitement has been uh, mounting and generating and mushrooming and snowballing and escalating and skyrocketing. And the uh, contestants out there, the uh, audience, you're kind of uh, palpitating and uh, drooling and salivating and getting ready now for the moment. The moment has arrived. 
And the lucky, lucky person is Mr. Frank Pesh. And that's how the film begins. And I just, I still get goosebumps listening to the way Joe spoke and listening to the way that Joe uh, set up phrases. The guy had a way with words. He was hilarious. His jokes were some of the corniest, oldest jokes God ever created. For instance, uh, whenever he'd make a, a, a reference to his own age, he would always be the person that said, uh, uh, I'm so old that when I was coming up, the Dead Sea was only sick. Uh, he would say, I- I'm the one, when I interviewed Moses, I'm the one that told him to take two tablets. I would say, Joe, did you ever get in trouble on television? He said, uh, well, you know, I only got in trouble one one particular occasion, and that was, you know, back in those days, the thing to do was uh, you would uh, promote cigarette brands. And uh, back then, uh, we can't believe it now, but back then uh, there were these ads saying that uh, eight out of ten doctors preferred camels. The other, uh, the other two stuck with women. That kind of thing. You, you ever get in trouble on television, though, Joe? Well, you know, one time, one time, I like, you know, I like to have a little fun, and uh, I uh, talked about uh, a merger that was occurring between two grocery stores, Stop and Shop and A and P, and they were forming a new conglomerate called Stop and P. So that's the kind of humor that Joe was responsible for, and. Um, well, let me play. So just getting back to Joe's role as himself in a lot of different films. He was in a lot of Woody Allen films, Manhattan, Broadway, Danny Rose, several others. He would be in any film of anybody that asked him. And one of the great New York films of all time wouldn't have been one of the great iconic New York films of all time had Joe Franklin not been in it. The film is Ghostbusters. And Joe Franklin has the most memorable line in the entire movie. Now, think to yourself, what is the most memorable line in the entire film of Ghostbusters? Think. It belongs to Joe Franklin, and it's when Sigourney Weaver is up late at night because anybody that ever had insomnia was very well acquainted with Joe Franklin because there was no cable in those days. Joe was up against a test pattern. At one thirty in the morning on Channel 9. So if you were awake and you didn't want to listen to radio and you wanted to listen, watch television, you were watching Joe Franklin. And that's what Sigourney Weaver was doing when Joe said this. As they say in TV, I'm sure there's one big question on everybody's mind, and I imagine you are the man to answer that. How is Elvis, and have you seen him lately? <laughs> How great is that? Now... In interviewing more than 50 – by the way, if you have a quick remembrance of Joe Franklin or a quick thought or a qu- an idea of what made him so special, give me a call, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Whenever it's his birthday, uh, I try to pay a, a little bit of a tribute to Joe. Uh, he has interviewed more than 50,000 guests over the years, and uh, some of the biggest names in the history of history – have been on that show. He's interviewed six presidents, interviewed John Lennon. He interviewed Elvis. He interviewed Garth Brooks. He interviewed uh, uh, all sorts of people, including one of his heroes, Bing Crosby, who he felt that Bing was uh, just, uh, that was when he melted. He felt Bing was always, 
it mechanically reproduced. So he got to interview Bing, and this was a little bit of Joe Franklin, his interview with Bing Crosby, just a couple of years before Bing passed away. That was a sad story. My guest, ladies and gentlemen, is a man who has sold more records than anybody else. More hit movie. Now, uh, some maybe a fiction about the records, uh, Joe. You can't. You think the Beatles? You, know, well, you, you think know, the Beatles came close? I think they must sell more. Yeah. When you think of these days, uh, there's so many more record buyers. So many more people have playback machines and all those stereo sets. In those days, gee, if you got a record to sell a hundred thousand, you were having a big sale mm-hmm. way back there, you know. So I don't see how that could be true. But uh, the figures are put out by the. The record companies. I'll have to check that over and see if I got paid on all those royalties. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to believe it. It sold 400 million records. I didn't get that much money, Joe. Being the... Uh, but I'm glad to get anything, you know. You did fair. You did fair. The, the fellows who impersonated you in vaudeville, including Sid Gary, and, and when they would do that boo 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 I used to wonder, did you ever really, like they say, like Cary Grant never said uh, Judy, 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 yeah. and Betty Davis never said this, and Humphrey Bogart oh, never no. said... All right, Louis, drop the gun. People have asked me, because I'm supposed to be somewhat an authority, did Bing Crosby ever really go boo 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 when he sang? Yes, there's a couple of records, uh, I think, in Learn to Croon from a picture called College Humor. Was that on purpose or because... No, because it was considered very classy. Then, you know, from boo boo boo, they went to vo-do-de-o, and then right. hi-de-ho, and then ha-cha-cha. So Joe interviewed some big stars, Bill Cosby, Bing Crosby, Woody Allen, Dan Aykroyd, Howard Stern, uh, the Ramones, the Jay Giles Band, many others. But really, if you watch the Joe Franklin show on a daily basis, you wouldn't see um, people like Bing Crosby and Bill Cosby. That was a rarity. That was once a year, maybe once every six months. What you would see was the world's fastest painter. Uh, somebody like Morris Katz. You'd see a singing dentist. You'd see a, a somebody, a singer, um, performing in a dinner theater somewhere that you'd never heard of. You'd And he would have these interesting panels of people together. He would say, all right, well, here's uh, Babe Ruth's widow uh, sitting next to a bounty hunter. And then he would ask them the most ridiculous non-sequitur questions in the world. All right, we have uh, a bounty hunter here, Babe Ruth's widow, and... Uh, uh, the conductor of uh, the uh, New York Philharmonic. Uh, so uh, tell me, what's your favorite silent film? Now, what, what does this bounty hunter know about silent films? Nothing. But that's what made the Joe Franklin show so great. It was absolutely unpredictable on both TV and radio. And I got a great compliment today. And I don't know if the person that tweeted this to me knew that today was Joe Franklin's birthday. But Steve McShane on Twitter responded to one of my tweets by saying, you're the best thing in New York City late night since Joe Franklin. Now, that warmed the cockles of my heart because Joe was not only very much a mentor to me, but he's somebody that I knew um, since I was 16, somebody that I was a fan of and somebody who was one of my closest friends. And um, he would I was on Sunday mornings for many years on another radio station. And Joe, until he passed away in 2016, would call me every single Sunday right after the show, usually about eight times. And he would say the same thing just about every Sunday. He would say, Frank, I have to tell you, that is one of the the greatest radio shows I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, six months, ten months, a year from now, at most, you are going to be one of the biggest stars in the history of radio. Uh, thank you, Joe. Now, like, i got to ask you, around 8.15 in the morning, around 8.15 in the morning, you you mentioned a book. What was that? What was that book that you mentioned? Uh, I'm not sure, Joe. Was it the President's Club? Yes, yes, yes. The President's Club. 
is there any way that I could get a copy of that book? Now, you'd go into Joe's office. There would just be stacks and stacks of books and clutter everywhere. And when is he going to read this book? Yes, Joe, I'll bring it to you. Okay, now let me ask you this. The the 7 o'clock news, they, they did a story. The last three words of the story were, and they'll never be the same. Uh, is there any way you can – I hate to ask you this, Frank. Is there any way that you can go back and look at what that story was? I want to talk about it on Bloomberg. And at that point, Joe was on for about 15 minutes a week, and yet he would have me do – an hour of show prep for him every Sunday for this Bloomberg show. But I didn't mind doing it because I loved him. And I interviewed him many times over the years on both TV and on radio, including in uh, this particular interview when we talked about him being the father of the modern TV talk show, a staple in this city for literally decades. Any New Yorker that ever had insomnia, uh, which is just about any New Yorker, this was before really everybody had cable, um, you know, this show was ubiquitous. You were an institution, and just even you, you might know, uh, not to break in, Frank, I, I invented the talk show. The oh. big special put out by A&E, by Hearst, by Hearst called It's Only Talk, and they, they reminisced with me when I, Martin, remember the name Martin Block in the Make Believe Ballroom? Absolutely. You were a platter spinner with uh, with, with Martin Block. on platter spinner, record taker, got my, my own radio show on WNEW, the late, uh, late WNEW, and one day I get a phone call from Channel 7, they're considering lighting up in the daytime. There was no daytime TV, no, so they said, Joe, if we give you an hour that we like your voice, if we give you an hour what kind of show might you do? I said, well, I do a show people talking, nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball. They said, Joe, you're out of your mind. You can't do a talk show on television. you got to give themselves a bottle of pratfalls and baggy pants, burleskets. So, and rock and roll was starting to come. I said, well, I do a show kids dancing to records. I said, Joe, you're nuts. Who's going to watch kids dance to records? So, you know, Dick Clark comes along and becomes a billionaire. <laughs> I defied them, Frank, and I did the first pure organic from the bones TV talk show. And uh, it was just always a treat to be able to talk with him. I learned so much from him, and I really miss him. Uh, We're going to talk with Aaron Maté about the Ukraine situation in just a minute. Maybe throughout the morning we'll play some more uh, pieces of Joe Franklin audio, and I uh, will take and share some of my stories and my memories of Joe on the air and off the air over the years because the -the off-the-air stories were even funnier than the -the on-the-air stories. Very quickly, though, Al is in New Jersey. Hello, Al. Hey, it's really a pleasure. Uh, Joe Franklin was one of my favorite guys. I knew him very well. Um, I One time I brought uh, Otto Preminger, who had written his biography, as a guest on Joe's show on WOR. And so anyway, I brought Otto on, and Joe, as you know, would be ruffling around when he was off camera for the questions that were prepared beforehand to ask the guest. And anyway, he couldn't find them, and he's ad-libbing, and Otto is sitting there with the, the holding the new book that he wrote, and uh, Joe said to him, yeah, my next guest is uh, Otto Preminger. He played a lot of great uh, Nazi roles, and, he did a, and he's going on. And Otto interrupts him. He says, Franklin, you idiot. I hate being a Nazi. I hated the Nazi roles. I'm finished with you. And he left. It's really? Oh, boy. What I wouldn't give to see that. That is very funny, Al. That was so much fun. That's and, wild. That's and, wild. And, and that was know, the typical Joe Franklin show right there in a nutshell. Exactly. And, and you know, and then he just w- without any kind of uh, hesitation, he said, and now 
Martin Paint. It ain't just paint. <laughs> it ain't just paint indeed. It's right. It's funny. Um, Carol Alt was telling me about the time she met Donald Trump. You know where she met him? In the green room at the Joe Franklin Show. Very quickly, BJ is in Queens. Hello, BJ. Hello. Thank you, Frank. A lot of beautiful memories from uh, Joe Franklin Show. Interviewed everybody. I think he knew everybody in the city. He was immortalized by uh, Billy Crystal. He had that great restaurant over on 40th and 8th, and he would run around and to every 45th. 40, I beg your pardon. And uh, he had all the memorabilia up, and he'd go to everybody at the table. Hey, how do you like my cooking? <laughs> and uh, he was a blessing. And mark my words, Frank Morano, you too will be immortalized on Saturday Night Live with an impersonation. Now, these days, I'm not sure that's as much of a compliment as it was back then. Very lastly, Debbie in Cranford. Hello. Hi. Um, I think I remember when uh, in Bransford Park in Newark, New Jersey, they used to have Jerome Hines sing um once a year there, and I've, I've known Jerome Hines a long time, but I never had the pleasure of meeting Joe Franklin, by, but I think one year he was an MC there. Well, I, I don't know for a fact, but it would not surprise me if that was the case. Thank you, Debbie. We'll do more Joe Franklin rem- remembrances throughout the day. I know a lot of his family and loved ones still listen to this show, and a lot of his friends do. So uh, we'll we'll share some memories of Joe throughout the day. If you want to call in with any memories of Joe Franklin, you can. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Aaron Mate in just a minute. But uh, I am remembered of one of the great pieces of show business advice that uh, Joe ever gave me. He said that it was passed on to him from Eddie Cantor. The most important thing in life, particularly in show business, is sincerity. And once you've learned to fake that, You've got it made. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, the more news that we hear out of Ukraine, the sadder it gets, not only for the Ukrainian people, but for the Russian people and even for Americans. I mean, for starters, you see these images of people forced to leave their homes, people being killed, people dying, people injured, and you can't help but have your heart bleed for these folks. Then you look at the potential for the hurt to the American economy with things like record high gas gas prices, and you can't help but shake your head in frustration. Then you think to yourself, well, if this keeps escalating, we could be looking very sincerely at the prospect of a new world war. There seems to be a lot of frustration, a lot of hand-wringing, and not necessarily a lot of agreement, except on one thing. The one thing that policymakers on both sides of the aisle seem to agree on, and media outlets on the left and on the right seem to agree on, is that Vladimir Putin is a Hitlerian-style madman bent on uh, rebuilding the Soviet Union and maybe even more, and that this is all his fault. Anybody that dares even question that narrative is quickly labeled as a stooge for the Kremlin, shouted down, easily dismissed, uh, banished from conventional media outlets, at least most of them, and uh, suppressed from uh, new media and social media. Well, we happen to have one of those Kremlin stooges with us this morning. I am very, very pleased to welcome Aaron Mate. He's a Canadian journalist, a reporter for the Gray Zone, and a contributor to Real Clear Investigations. He's 
He's also a former producer of Democracy Now!, which is sort of the go-to left-of-center media program. It's a multimedia program, radio, television, and a whole lot more. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, thanks for having me. Uh, Aaron, one of the things that I really like about you is that you've done something to earn the ire of everybody, people on the left, people on the right. And uh, I think a big part of that was your coverage and your commentary during the Russiagate investigation, what a lot of folks call the Russiagate hoax, where, you know, you upset a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people on the left because you weren't necessarily willing to buy into this narrative that Donald Trump was somehow a Russian agent. And you consistently upset people on the right with your sort of natural bent towards progressivism. Why did you uh, question the conventional narrative on Russia Gate and Russian collusion and uh, Donald Trump being a Russian narrative? Why not march in lockstep with so many on the left who felt that was the case? Well, there's two reasons. The first is professional and the second is political. When it comes to professional reasons. I'm a journalist. And so the job of a journalist is to follow the facts, no matter what the partisan line on those facts is. And in the case of Russiagate, it was so obvious when I looked at the facts, it was a scam. This idea that Trump is a Russian agent and his, his campaign engaged in this broad conspiracy with Russia, it was a joke. And if you read the actual evidence that came out, the court filings from Mueller, the many disclosures that we got throughout that multi-year saga. It was a scam. There was nothing there. And it was only a deception on the part of people inside the intelligence community and people inside the media that kept it going. And so me taking journalism seriously required me to follow the facts. And that's what I did. And second of all, from a partisan perspective, look, I am a left-winger and I I take left-wing politics seriously. And I thought even from a partisan perspective, first of all, it was a massive gift to Donald Trump to turn his opposition into a deranged Russia conspiracy cult, where literally the way to resist Trump for over two years was to believe that he was a Russian agent and to sit back for Robert Mueller to prove it. Well, we all know how that turned out. When Robert Mueller came before Congress, he didn't even know the details of his own investigation, and his investigation found absolutely nothing when it came to a Trump-Russia conspiracy. So uh, that was a big gift to Trump, even from a political perspective. Not that that was my guiding motive, but to the extent that I was guided by, politi- by politics, that was a part of it. And second of all, and, and this speaks to the current moment that we're in now, Russiagate to me was normalizing this incredibly dangerous mentality where Trump, when he would talk about having diplomacy with Russia and when he was skeptical of NATO, where all of that was deemed to be traitorous, that somehow he was betraying his country by simply calling for better relations with Russia – which is the world's other top nuclear power. And so look where we are now. Now we're in the, one of the most dangerous moments that this world has seen since the end of the Second World War in Ukraine, in large part because for the last five-plus years, diplomacy with Russia has been criminalized, and the way to sort of uh, show your patriotism and your, quote-unquote, uh, resistance to Trump has been to encourage militarism with Russia, which to me is just insanity. And it's played a major part in leading to this moment Mm -hmm. that we're in right now with Ukraine and Russia. One of the things that uh, Bill Barr, the former Trump attorney general who's now 
not no longer in Trump's good graces because of some of the things that he says in his book. One of the things Bill Barr said yesterday was that uh, the the Russia hoax actually tied Donald Trump's hands in dealing with Putin and Russia. Do you share that characterization? He's absolutely right. And you can find countless examples of it. During the period that Democrats like Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi were screaming about this fictitious Trump-Russia conspiracy plot and speculating that Trump was being compromised by uh, blackmail from Putin, whether it's the P-tape or other forms of compromise. During that period, Trump, Trump's administration was implementing a series of very hawkish policies towards Russia. He tore up uh, multiple arms control deals that were reached during the Cold War, including the INF Treaty. Uh, he tried to kill the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. He increased weapon sales to Ukraine, something that Obama refused to do because Obama was worried about weapons, U.S. weapons getting to the arms of uh, far-right militants inside Ukraine and further inflaming the proxy war between uh, the U.S. and Russia inside Ukraine with the Donbass war that's been going on for eight years. And Trump did all that after he was being accused constantly of being a Russian agent. I think that if Trump hadn't faced these constant claims that he was compromised by Russia, I think his Russia policy would have been very different. But when he came into office, he was constantly being called a traitor, and he was facing constant pressure on him from the bipartisan foreign policy establishment to, for example, send more weapons to Ukraine. So in the face of that, I think he caved. And had that not happened, I'm pretty confident, or at least it's pretty plausible to speculate, that he would have actually implemented the policies that he ran on, mm. which actually was cooperation with Russia. But Russiagate criminalized all of that. And so Bill Barr is, is exactly right to point that out. Yeah, no, I, I was a, a Trump voter, and that was one of my great disappointments with President Trump as he ran uh, in 2016 as someone who wanted detente with Russia. And then uh, whenever there was an opportunity to go in the opposite direction, he he did just that. Do, do you hold out any hope for the, um, the, the Durham investigation, for holding some folks accountable for the, the Russiagate hoax? I do. And if Durham is allowed to do his job, I really think this is one of the most important investigations that we've had in decades. Think about what a scam this was. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, and again, I'm not a Donald Trump fan. Sure. I didn't vote for him. I don't support his agenda. But this was a case where the U.S. intelligence community and the Justice Department was weaponized to box in an elected president by accusing him of being a traitor to the Kremlin, the U.S.'s top geopolitical foe. And the Justice Department and the FBI kept this investigation going for more than two years, even though they knew from the start there was nothing there, even though they knew that so much of this was fueled by a contractor that was paid for by Trump's political opponent, the skill dossier, which is literally paid for by the Clinton campaign. So this is just from the point of view of uh, restoring basic democratic norms. For John Durham to investigate this is paramount. And so far, he's uncovered some bad actors like Michael Sussman, who is the attorney for a Clinton campaign, who's been indicted for lying to the FBI while trying to promote a fake Trump-Russia story about Alpha Bank and the server. And so absolutely, I, I think that Durham's investigation is, is incredibly important. The question is, will he be allowed to make his findings public? And given that they are so embarrassing, I think, for Democrats— 
we shouldn't be so sure of that. But that's why we should be uh, insisting that what Durham, whatever he finds, just like Democrats were saying back when Mueller was on the case, that Durham should be able to make his findings public in full. Uh, the reason I wanted to go back is because I really do think all that stuff is so relevant to the situation that we find ourselves in now uh, with the Russia and Ukraine situation. One of the other areas that I find relevant is NATO's um, expansion and continuing expansion right up until Russia's borders. And basically, if not prodding, at least welcoming Ukraine into into NATO in the uh, long run, along with other uh, countries in the Russian sphere of influence. Now, when I've mentioned this, the role of NATO expansion in fomenting Russian aggression on the air, I am uh, quickly uh, labeled as Moscow Morano. Some people have said I'm a, a Putin apologist. And um, I, and do you think, I'm curious, that it's wrong to mention not only the role of NATO expansion, but America's role in bringing about this whole this Russian invasion, including um, fomenting a, a coup of a democratically elected president in Ukraine eight years ago? You know, Frank, what's incredible is that the position you espouse of just questioning the the wisdom of expanding a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders via Ukraine, that was once a mainstream position. Mm. It was once espoused by people like George Keenan, who was one of the most eminent, accomplished U.S. diplomats ever. Uh, he warned in the late 1990s when NATO was expanding that this was going to be a disaster, that it would provoke Russia and that it would be the worst U.S. foreign policy decision since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Henry Kissinger has also espoused that view. Robert McNamara, many people of that generation were very, very concerned of the dangers of expanding NATO. Now you try to find somebody inside Washington who will be willing to say that. If they do, they'll be chased out of town. So things have really changed in the last uh, 20 years or so, and because it's so crazy— uh, to uh, so, so crazy a policy to expand a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders. The only way you can defend it is by calling anyone who criticizes it a Russian agent so or a Russian apologist. So was George Keenan a Russian apologist when he questioned it in 1997, or was Robert McNamara or many other prominent people inside the foreign policy community who called this out? Are they Russian agents? Of course not. But it's just the way things have gone, the policy has gone so militaristic that the only way to handle criticism is just to call people names. And you look at the actual reality, and there's no doubt that this effort to turn Ukraine into a NATO proxy state is suicidal for everybody. Ukraine is a very divided country. There are people inside Ukraine who absolutely hate Russia and very much want to be a part of NATO. But the problem is they're not the only people inside of Ukraine. Polls consistently show a very, very divided country. Some people want to go with the West. Some people want to go with Russia. So the answer when you have a very divided country is to simply make it neutral. Don't force it to choose sides. And unfortunately, the U.S. policy, especially since 2014, when the U.S., as you said, backed a coup, has been to try to force Ukraine into the Western NATO orbit. And it's just all the more crazy given that Ukraine is not on U.S. borders. It's not Canada or Mexico, in which you have a plausible argument for a U.S. sphere of influence on, under the Monroe Doctrine. Ukraine is on Russia's borders. 
So why are we trying so hard to the point of backing coups and flooding the country with weapons to bring it into a hostile military alliance? The, the only answer, uh, the only outcome of that is disaster, as exactly we're seeing right now. Now, um, in terms of what we're seeing now in this war, not only has Russia invaded a sovereign country, but the media coverage has depicted a, a particularly gruesome manner in which the Russians are waging this war. Uh, just yesterday, Russia's president accused Russia of carrying out genocide after Ukrainian officials said that Russian aircraft bombed a children's hospital, burying, they were burying patients in rubble in spite of a ceasefire deal for people to flee the city of Mariupol. And there was even um, reporting that a hospital with a maternity ward was was bombed now there's no excuse for any of this kind of behavior is it i mean one are you convinced that what we're seeing in terms of reports of things like bombing of children's hospitals is true and two do you join with the rest of conventional media in denouncing and decrying this i absolutely decry the russian invasion of ukraine there's no excuse for invading a country that has sovereign borders, and Russia violated that with the charter. And in the process, it's killed many civilians and caused hundreds of thousands of refugees. And I understand that Russia has concerns that were completely ignored by the U.S., and those concerns were legitimate, but that that doesn't justify launching an invasion. Now, it is worth noting one thing, is that all this media outcry over the atrocities by Russia and Ukraine, we have not heard them at all over the last eight years, even though there's been a war going on in Ukraine since 2014. After the U.S. backed a coup in 2014 and helped install a far-right coup government, the new government essentially waged war on the Russian-speaking population. First, they effectively banned the Russian language inside Ukraine, which was going after millions of people. And then when Russian-speaking or ethnic Russian uh, Ukrainians in the Donbass region essentially rebelled and refused to live under a coup government who overthrew the government that they voted for, uh, the, gov- the government in Ukraine launched a war. And there's been a brutal war inside Ukraine for eight years where over 14,000 people have died. And the majority of that has been civilians on the pro-Russian side in the Donbass, in these two breakaway regions of uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk. So for these people and for millions of Ukrainians, the war didn't begin when Putin invaded uh, the war began eight years ago when the U.S. backed a coup, and that's just worth acknowledging. It doesn't excuse Putin invading, but it does show the reality that this war did not begin, at least for millions of Ukrainians, last week when Russia invaded. I think Russia had other options than to invade if they wanted, if their aim was to protect the besieged civilians of the Donbass. I think they had other peaceful options, so I don't think you can excuse what they did. But the media also is giving people a false picture and pretending that this war just began with Russia's invasion, at least for 14,000 people who are dead eight years ago. Now, in terms of specific allegations of atrocities by Russia, during war, I'll just caution people that it's very, very hard to, to independently evaluate these claims. And all sides put out propaganda. Ukraine puts out propaganda, and so does Russia. And so before accepting claims about uh, atrocities on faith, it's important to see independent corroboration. And I haven't seen that yet when it comes to some of these key atrocities. What is undoubtedly clear is that Russia has killed civilians and they're forcing 
hundreds of thousands of people to flee. That's true. But when you get into specific allegations, I would just, not that they're false, but I would just caution accepting them before you can see independent evidence. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Aaron Mate. He's a Canadian journalist, reporter for The Gray Zone, and a contributor to Real Investigations. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, where he does a lot of great coverage and uh, a lot of great writing. Yesterday, the big story was the Pentagon um, rejecting this Polish plan to provide fighter jets to Ukraine. Evidently, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, told the Polish Minister of the of Defense that uh, the U.S. does not support the transfer of MiG-29 fighter jets to the Ukrainian Air Force at this time. What do you think of what Poland was trying to do in get fighter getting fighter jets to the Ukrainians? And do you think the Biden administration made the right decision here in not going along with it? Poland was trying to get the U.S. to put their money where their mouth is because the U.S. for the last eight years has been funneling a lot of weapons into Ukraine, while also promising NATO membership to Ukraine. So when it came down to it, after basically egging on this war, and after the U.S. basically rejected a lot of diplomatic solutions that could have prevented war, for example, Russia wanted Ukraine just to pledge neutrality. So not being in the Russia bloc, but also not being in the U.S.-led NATO bloc. The U.S. rejected that. Russia also wanted Ukraine to respect the Minsk Accords, which is the negotiated solution on record that would end the war in the Donbass for the last eight years, which simply calls for the Donbass region to be demilitarized and for Russia to withdraw its support for these for these rebels in the Donbass in exchange for the Donbass being uh, having autonomy uh, and um, being able to have a sway over Ukraine's future. That's a pretty fair bargain, and it makes sense for a country that is so divided. The U.S., though, has not put any pressure at all on its client in Ukraine to implement those Minsk Accords. And so the U.S. has essentially encouraged Ukraine into this conflict, as scholars like John Mearsheimer have been warning about for a long time. So the U.S. helped put Ukraine in this position while simultaneously refusing to come to its defense. So not that I want Ukraine to join NATO, but there's something incredibly um, – uh, it's craven for the U.S. to basically encourage Ukraine to join NATO and to encourage it to not make peace with Russia. And then finally, Russia responds in this harsh way to not come to its defense. And so Poland was basically calling the U.S.'s bluff and asking it to uh, sign off on delivering these uh, MiG fighter jets to Ukraine. And the U.S. said no, because the U.S. knows that if it does that, that raises the possibility of putting the U.S. in direct conflict with Russia, and it doesn't want that because it doesn't want to set up World War III. And so Ukraine has essentially been used as this pawn, and that's what's so tragic about all of this, mm. is that while claiming to defend Ukraine and care about its sovereignty, and by the way, which is such a joke when you look at the fact that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, got a gig for $80,000 per month right after the U.S. backed a coup in Ukraine in 2014, and somehow we're supposed to care about, uh, we're somewhere supposed to believe that Joe Biden cares about Ukraine being sovereign and not corrupt. It's such a complete joke. So the U.S. essentially encouraged Ukraine to get into this war with Russia. And when it happened, won't come to its defense because it doesn't want to engage in, in World War III. And I, I don't want World War III, but it just speaks to the tragedy of basically using Ukrainians as cannon fodder for this fruitless quest to turn it into a NATO colony. It just doesn't make any sense. 
Uh, you mentioned President Biden. Uh, President Biden was quick to level new sanctions against Russia, a country that already had many sanctions leveled on it. They're out of the SWIFT banking system, uh, the uh, SWIFT banking system, the number of other sanctions. And then just this week, he announced that uh, American, America was going to be prohibiting any import of Russian oil and gas, which means, of course, that Americans are going to be paying higher prices at the gas pump in order to hurt the Russian economy. Give me your view of uh, President Biden's decision on the sanctions in general and these energy restrictions specifically. Well, to me, Joe Biden's policies here reflect the extreme contempt that elites like him have for working people. So on the one hand, Joe Biden gets to exploit his leverage over Ukraine back when he was vice president. He was essentially the viceroy in Ukraine after the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Joe Biden was so influential that Burisma, this big energy company in Ukraine, felt compelled to hire Hunter Biden, a very troubled young man with no experience whatsoever in the energy field, for $80,000 per month just to try to curry favor with the new boss, which was Joe Biden. So Joe Biden uses and exploits his government's interference in Ukraine to help his son get a gig for $80,000 per month, so over a million dollars per year. And now, you know, uh, four years later, uh, six years later, um, now Joe Biden's policies in Ukraine, essentially continuing the policies that he had when he was vice president of trying to use Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia, that leads to a war in which Ukrainians and Russians are decimated. And now he's asking average Americans to, to shoulder the cost. It's just such an expression of contempt for average people. And it shows the how, you know, U.S. elites play by different rules. They get to profit off of their plunder. And when the consequences happen to the point of war, it's average people who have to pay for it via their uh, higher gas prices, higher food prices and inflation. It's so sick. I have pages worth of questions that I could ask you, um, and I hope you'll come back and we can do this again maybe in a week or two. But I can't let you go without asking your opinion about what we saw this week from uh, Victoria Newland in her testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. On Tuesday, you had the um, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, actually testify before a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on Ukraine. And she said that the United States was working with Ukraine to prevent invading Russian forces from seizing biological research material. Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Now, one of the things that we had heard from uh, the administration, from everybody, uh, everybody really, is that that what the Russians were claiming, that there was a biological um, warfare facility or a biological weapons facility in Ukraine that the United States government was partnered with the Ukrainians on was just some sort of bizarre conspiracy theory with no basis in fact. Well, I mean, if you look at what Victoria Nuland said yesterday, 
I mean, it sounds like there's at least more than a kernel of truth to this. You see, I think that's quite possible. At the same time, though, it's hard to speculate without knowing exactly what's going on. So I have to be cautious about that. But Newland certainly looked uncomfortable at the question. And it does raise questions about whether there's something we're not being told. But I can't speak to what is really going on because it would just be speculation. What I do know is that, to me, it's a scandal that Victoria Newland is allowed to continue to work in Washington and be appointed under Biden to a senior position in the U.S. government helping to run policy in Ukraine when it was Victoria Newland who was a senior aide to Dick Cheney when he was presiding over the Iraq war. And then Victoria Newland, who played an instrumental role in the 2014 coup in Ukraine to the point where there's a leaked phone call. And I encourage anyone who hasn't heard it to go look it up. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it. There's a leaked phone call that was intercepted by either Ukraine or Russia in which Victoria Newland and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in 2014 they decide they are choosing who is going to be the new Ukrainian government after the Ukrainian government they're trying to overthrow is ousted. And they settle on a, on a few candidates, and lo and behold, their choices become the new Ukrainian government. So she is up to her ears in scandal when it comes to Ukraine. And Biden responds to that by rewarding her with a senior position, essentially running his policy on Ukraine. So it's, it's totally insane that she's even there in, in a position to answer questions about this. And yes. The fact that this is even a possibility that the U.S. might be backing or enabling biological warfare labs in Ukraine, and now the U.S. government today has been accusing Russia of of potentially using this allegation to carry out false flags of its own, its own biological attacks and chemical attacks in Ukraine, it speaks to how dangerous this moment it is, is, and thus how reckless it was for the U.S. to reject all Russian proposals to resolve this issue before the invasion, including neutrality for Ukraine, to the point where now the two top nuclear powers are trading allegations about possible false flags, and a major constituency in Washington wants a no-fly zone, which essentially would mean World War III. So we're in an incredibly dangerous moment, and it speaks to, in times like these, diplomacy to prevail. And... uh, Uh, cool heads to prevail, not these increasingly unhinged accusations and clamor for war, which only hurts average people, whether it's in Ukraine foremost, and also average people in the U.S. too, who are paying the price at the gas pump and in the grocery stores and many other places. It really gives you, at least me, an appreciation for uh, folks like the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, who are at least trying to mediate a diplomatic solution here between Russia and the West and uh, and bring an end to this. Final question, uh, Aaron, and uh, again, I, I really do hope you'll come back, is one of the things that's also been labeled as Russian propaganda is the claim that the Ukrainian government is allied with Nazi. Uh, is that true? I mean, obviously, that would uh, strike a lot of people as odd, given that Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is Jewish. Is there any truth from what you can tell and the research you've done that there is a Nazi influence in the current Ukrainian government? Uh, there's an absolute Nazi influence in the government. Now, it doesn't mean that they dominate the government and they don't dominate society. It's a very small percentage of the population. But they do play a very outsized role. I can give you a few examples. Ukraine is the only country in the world 
where a neo-Nazi militia is officially incorporated into the armed forces, and they're called the Azov Battalion. Anyone can look that up. Uh, and their importance to the Ukrainian military was underscored a few weeks ago when Richard Engel of NBC News, he took part in a media stunt where average Ukrainian citizens, including great-grandmothers, were being trained with weapons that they're going to be fighting in Russian invaders. Richard Engel of NBC News took part in a media stunt that was organized by the Azov Battalion. And you can see their patches. It was aired on NBC and, NBC and, and, and MSNBC. And you look up their insignia, and literally it comes from the Nazi era. That's what they come from because they're neo-Nazi. So there's no doubt that neo-Nazi militias play a, a very big role. Uh, look at Zelensky. Yes, he is Jewish. But look at what's happened to him since he ran. He was elected on a platform of peace. He was going to make peace with Russian-backed rebels in the East. He was going to implement the Minsk Accords. What happened when he tried to do that? Uh, there's footage of him going to the Donbass and meeting with these far-right neo-Nazi militias, and they tell him to go away. And since then, there have been many public statements from far-right leaders inside Ukraine who essentially threatened to overthrow Zelensky, just like they overthrew the government in 2014 with U.S. backing, if he makes peace with Russia. You can read quotes about this up until the eve of the Russian invasion, where far-right leaders in Ukraine were saying that if Zelensky makes peace, peace with Russia, we'll have a million people on the streets and we'll overthrow him. So I don't totally fault him for everything that's happened because he's in a very tough position where if he really implemented his campaign promises of peace, he would have paid the price not just with his job but possibly with his life, and he's had no support from the U.S., uh, and But regardless, it speaks undoubtedly to the influence of, of neo-Nazis inside of Ukraine. Again, it doesn't mean that they're a big percentage of the population, but certainly their influence is there, and nobody serious can deny that. Uh, we're going to have to end it there. Aaron Mate, I very much appreciate the time this morning, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. I don't want my heart to be broken, but it's the only one I've got. So, Lord, The great Elvis Presley here on the other side of midnight. Uh, we'll take your calls in just a moment. 800-848-WABC. Still to come, uh, we have the AC report coming up at 3.30. Uh, we're going to talk with Mark Colazzo. He's the He owns a bunch of businesses out there. They're all in the so-called Orange Loop, which is named so for the color on the Monopoly board. Monopoly, of course, is based on Atlantic City. And then coming up in about a half hour, we're going to talk COVID and aliens with New York Times bestselling author Bill Burns. Uh, we only I don't want to make anybody limit their comments to 20 seconds. So those of you that are holding, we will take your calls in 77 seconds after the top of the hour news. 
and uh, a lot of other stuff we'll get to as well. And it's not all going to be blood and destruction and nostalgic looks at uh, dead talk show hosts. We're also going to look at uh, some fun stuff that is happening right now as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, You can find me on Twitter, at Frank Moreno. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population and have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. So there's this article uh, in the Daily News about pizza chains. And uh, I want to I go through some of the chains that are highlighted in this uh, Daily News article in, uh, in just a bit. Uh, but uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to my interview with uh, Aaron Mate because we covered a lot of ground and I think it would be unfair for me to switch to another subject right away. So if you have thoughts on my interview with Aaron Mate, give me a call, 800-848-WABC. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns is a New York Times bestselling author. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID, and we're going to talk a little bit about the ancient alien hypothesis. It is Thursday, so we'll do the AC report at 3.30. I have a lot of other tricks up my sleeve as well. And uh, if Time permits, we'll play some more Joe Franklin clips as well, and I'll share a few stories regarding Joe Franklin. But as promised, let me give you a chance to sound off on Ukraine. Lenny is in Beth Page. Hello, Lenny. Hey, Frank. How are you? Well, so I make a living. Okay. Well, I guess you do. But you know what? Like he he quoted, USA edged this on. I don't buy that. I don't believe that. And if you go back to history of of russia and everything else they always wanted ukraine back putin always wanted this country back since 1991 he wanted this country back it's the breadbasket, and people think he's crazy but the u.s the u.s didn't edge this on now in well, 2014 I mean, what about right so you mentioned 2014 what about the united states role in overthrowing a democratically elected president in ukraine uh Viktor yanukovych well, listen, Ukraine always had their problems. We, you know, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that this was always a breadbasket for the USSR. Putin always wanted it back. In 2014, he took back a big part of it, the Crimea with the Black Sea ports, because we had a weak president. And all of a sudden, now he's taking back the rest of the country because we have a weak president. And everyone sort of forgets that. But you know what? He didn't take it back under Bush in the early 2000s, didn't take it back under Trump. He, they, when there's chaos, when there's weakness in America, chaos reigns in the world, and the actors, the bad actors, they, right. they, they come back. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping you see. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, first of all, with respect to Crimea, right, Crimea was a part of Russia from the time of Catherine the Great until the time of Joseph Stalin. Now, when they, and when Stalin, Ukraine? well, hang on, hang on, hang on, wait, 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 wait. no, 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 I, I didn't interrupt you, so just give me an opportunity to speak. So, right, um, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I'm sorry. So, it's all right. So, when Stalin gave Crimea to Ukraine, it would almost be like like um, an American president giving uh, Liberty Island from New Jersey to New York, because at that point they were all part of the same country, the Soviet Union. So Crimea, uh, prior to 2014, actually had a much longer history being part of Russia than it did being part of uh, of Ukraine. Now you talk about uh, the you know the different presidents and right. Putin's, yeah. They were all let go in 91. Right. I, I understand that because Crimea okay. was part he of Crimea and he got it onto Obama. Yeah. Oh. Obama was weak. Now OK, uh, thank you. I was going to try and address that point, but um, I don't want to interrupt your interruptions. So I don't believe that it's a reflection of this president's weak, this president's strong. I believe that the reason you didn't see uh, Putin continue to invade other countries under the Trump regime or Trump era, whatever you want to say, is because Putin believed that Trump was sincere in his desire for better relations with Russia. Because unlike all these other people that had run for president in the last 20 years, Trump was the only one saying, yes, let's have better relations with Russia. Uh, and you, you cited Bush. I mean, Putin invaded Georgia while George W. Bush was president. So clearly um, and there was not this, oh, we're so afraid of George W. Bush because he's a strong president. No, I don't think that's the I don't think that's the I don't think that's the case at all. So we just uh, disagree. And let's say you're right about everything you just said. Now, again, I wish you would have been able to control yourself for 40 seconds to stop interrupting me so I could have gotten your response to this question. But I'll ask it rhetorically. Let's say you're right about everything that you said. What do we do now? Do we just get into a shooting war with the country with the largest stockpile of nuclear warheads in the entire country? I don't think so. I don't think that's good for us or the Ukrainians or the Russians. I don't think that's the way to go. 800-848-WABC. Andrea is in Bergen County. Hello, Andrea. Yes, hi. Um, Look, I agree with everything you're saying, Frank, and I listen to your guest, and he makes a lot of sense. Um, November 10th of last year, you've got uh, Tony Blinken over there with making a document and and congratulating Ukrainians and talking about, you know, them being closer to us and all. I see it as being, this is what I see. Biden needed a war because his his poll numbers are in 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 the tank. And I think that they sat back and allowed them to just build up, build up, build up, and they did nothing. In the end, they were not interested in peace, as your guest speaker said. And now the good question that you asked is, what now? This country, okay, is is going down the tubes rapidly. It's a question of which economy is going to tank first. And And he's right, your guest speaker. Why should we suffer from all of the of the consequences of all of this and 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 now it's all going to be blamed on putin when it really isn't well look i mean he did invade a sovereign country so putin does get some blame for that as i as i wanted to point out with aaron mate but i I think the the rest of your point is right on the money andrea thank you 
And I would just add that, um, look, when the, the we can argue about whether or not it was a good idea or a bad idea for President Biden to stop ru- imports of Russian oil. And I know he's trying to make up some of that shortfall with Venezuelan oil and Saudi Arabian oil, two countries which are great lovers of freedom and democracy. But um, the the consequence of that Biden decision to ban Russian oil, and we've already seen this, is that Americans have to pay more at the pump. So we have a situation where hardworking middle class Americans are paying more just so that we can hurt the Russian economy. Uh, is that a good move? I mean, we explored it yesterday. I don't want to revisit that whole thing, but tell me, I don't want, put, we'll put that a question aside. I'm asking it more rhetorically. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll endeavor to resist inserting my commentary. I'll let you guys be heard because I've gone on and on uh, long enough. And then uh, we have Bill Burns waiting in the wings. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Hello, Frank. Thank you, Frank, for uh, having uh, alternative reporting <clears throat> where we, we can get uh, facts. But uh, your guest, Aaron Monte, said that, you know, the American people take the, uh, the hit uh, economically. This, that. We also take the hit with our, uh, our soldiers, okay? Our soldiers make up uh, mostly working class members of our, our, our community. Right, but Joe Biden our made... soldiers are not dying at the moment. I yeah. mean, we are, well, we are suffering economically at the moment. That's true. But just the deployment of our soldiers hurts their families. Hurt, soldiers get hurt and killed in deployments with all those all that equipment being flown flown around and driven around and safety driving it at night but also the families of those deployed they're they're suffering too okay but here here's another point uh, the 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 rush to to war especially i see it on on progressive and black and some black progressive radio shows and i'll tell you the guys who were most vocal about this they work for rt and I, i'm just wondering if they're trying to uh, uh, get over their, their working for RT, and now they're they're pushing this war even harder, plain and simple. Do you understand what I'm I, I'm talking about? I, I don't, I don't, and I, I don't care to put in the time to find out. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, Frank. I, I don't think that this country comprehends the level of failure. I'm not talking about just failure, but the level of failure on all fronts of the Biden administration. I'm just going to outline it quickly, very quickly. Basically, there was two approaches they could have done to prevent this carnage, okay? They could have levied sanctions as soon as he sent troops to the border and played it tough because the, because then he would have been able to retreat and and, and keep his uh, keep face, okay? Or or he could have said, okay, admitted failure, which, which big statesmen could do, and say, listen, we screwed up. We isolated Russia. We were reflecting on all the years you spoke about and everything like that. Now, listen, we'll have a summit. We're, we're willing to give, yield. We're willing to give you let's talk. Don't invade. We're willing to work with your terms, uh, neutrality, everything else. Give him some verbal uh, advances and everything. Instead, guess what they did? They did neither. They did neither deterrence. Or negotiation. They fed Ukraine to the dogs, basically. Now, the problem they face now is, is that if they surrender through weakness to save lives, Putin will go further. He's got a, he's, it's like, it's like he's got a guppy on the other end of his fishing line. He's not going to let it go. And, 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 if, and on the other hand, 
if they if, if okay the other hand they can't go too far like michael goodwin said if he if we respond too strongly we could risk nuclear war so what i think they have to do and this is an imperative that rudy giuliani says that and he is downright brilliant rudy okay when he said i'm not saying it because he's brilliant i'm saying because i'm saying it too okay maybe maybe brilliant might stick like i don't know but what they have to do is they have to surrender through strength they have to get those migs in and they and then they have to negotiate once they're strong then they have to okay russia don't go further than this we're willing to negotiate your terms but do it through strength not through weakness all right well thank you larry look uh, I'm, I didn't vote for President Biden, and I think his sort of um, demonization of Russia for the last eight years at least has been very hurtful to this process. I do have to give him credit for two things. I do uh, think he deserves credit for not establishing a no-fly zone. Look, um, there's 74 percent of the American people that want a no-fly zone established, including increasing members of Congress. And Zelensky is all over television internationally begging for a no-fly zone, and Biden is still not doing it, which I think is a smart move. Additionally, I don't think allowing um, allowing uh, America to be a partner in Poland giving MiGs to the Ukrainian military is a smart move, and I gave credit to the uh, Department of Defense of that as well. Look. I I know nobody wants to hear this, but in my view, this ends one way. Basically, with the protocols that were outlined in the Minsk Accords in in 2015. And shame on everybody for not making these Minsk agreements or 2016, whatever it was, making these Minsk agreements get get through. So what has to happen? And I know nobody wants to go along with this because this is what Putin is demanding as as his price for ending the invasion. But what has to happen, in my view, and I think this ultimately probably will be what happened, what will happen. But my view is let's get it done sooner rather than later so that we can save some people's lives and get back to a reasonable energy economy is the two. Donbass republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, need to be independent. And they'll be like Russian client states. They'll be, we know that, and that's what they want to be because most of the people there are ethnic Russian. Boom. They have to recognize Russia's claim to Crimea. Ukraine does. Two. Three, uh, they have to demilitarize and demilitarize. And four, they have to agree never to join NATO. I think even we could get away with three out of the four. But, um, uh, look, I think that's how it ends. And I think if we get there sooner rather than later, that's a healthy thing. Now, nobody wants to do that because that would be giving Putin exactly what he wants. And you don't want to be rewarding someone who's invading a sovereign country. But what's the alternative? A lot more people die. Uh, and a lot more economies get ruined. Both of which are... Pretty significant things. And so, we'll, look, we'll be revisiting this in the future as well. And I said I would give you an opportunity to talk. So let me do that and refrain from injecting my own opinion anymore. Philip is in Mendham. Hello, Philip. Hi. Uh, thanks for uh, letting me speak. Um, I was going to speak. I've heard a few days uh, everyone talking about um, it, it, the invasion wouldn't have happened under Trump. It would happen uh, under a weak president and not a strong president. And I've heard nobody uh, dispute that, so I just thought I would. 
there was no um, policy daylight between Putin and Trump. Uh, when that cyber attack well, well, happened, what, what about on, the areas that that Aaron Mate and I reviewed? Of the areas where Trump was very hostile to to Putin, what, uh, the uh, what about bombing Syria? That was certainly well, then, you know I just heard the end of that, the very end of that before I, I uh, well, started so let, let me give you so then let me give you a couple right. So number one, uh, Trump bombed uh, Syria, a sovereign country, in opposition to what Putin wanted. He gave lethal aid to the Ukrainians to allow them to slaughter Russians in opposition to what Putin wanted. He went to Europe and publicly embarrassed Germany for daring to buy um, ener- gas and oil from the Russians through the Nord Stream pipeline. He um, allowed an INF treaty, uh, which had been signed by multiple presidents, Republican and Democrat, uh, that was a nuclear, uh, a missile nonproliferation treaty, a missile reduction treaty, uh, to uh, to lapse with Russia. I mean, those are a few areas. And he instituted sanctions against the Russians. So, I mean, don't you see that as policy well, daylight? I'd like, may I respond by, by, uh, by a counter response to those points that Go you ahead. made? Sure. Uh, okay, um, he pulled out of Syria completely. Uh, the general Mathis resigned as a result because he took away our presence in Syria for the benefit and glee of uh, both Russia and Turkey. Right, that after then, and we after bombing the them twice. The after that's bombing one. them twice. That's that's. But you know what? If, if someone said to Putin, hey, uh, how about they bomb the Syrians one night, but then they leave and never come back again? Putin goes, great deal. OK. All right. Now, the second thing is, is uh, the cyber attack the Russians did, the huge cyber attack they did on our government. I mean, initially, Trump blamed the Chinese. I, I quite remember that. Here's another thing. What about he the stood- Open Skies Treaty? What's your response to the Open Skies Treaty? Could you je- please remind me what it is? So the Treaty on Open, Sky- Open Skies was a, uh, a treaty that Trump essentially withdrew from, uh, 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 which ha- which dealt with arms control between the United States and the uh, and Russia. I I don't think that Putin is interested in arms control. Quite frankly, I think that would have worked for him. All right. Well, and what what about I have uh, like four more items? Go ahead, go if ahead, anyone go ahead. wants to go hear ahead, them, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the he, he stood at a podium next to Putin, and he rejected what like 14 of our intelligence agencies said, and in, in public at that podium took Putin's word over our right, intelligence the services. Okay, got it. Okay. What, what about then, the others? Okay, he uh, he he's denigrated uh, uh, elections and democracy in this country endlessly uh, so that basically uh, Putin can play those clips on television, you know, saying that we are not really a democracy. I mean, he's doing Putin's job for him. I can. There's only two items left. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, on NATO, he gave he telegraphed every intention that in the second administration he was going to pull out of it. And his aides expected him to pull out of it. And that is why uh, Putin would never interrupt a president that was doing so much for him at that time there was no way he was gonna which aides, then. he was gonna wait which aides expected trump to pull out of nato i can't tell you their names but i've read multiple reports well can you, you know name one they, they, can you name one 
No, I can't name you any can't of name, his, you, his you, you just made a pretty bold but we claim. We also saw all of his public statements on NATO. He didn't like them. He didn't want them. He, he, he scared the heck out of everybody and destabilized right. the alliance. So what he did was say that you know. the, the other countries should be spending the same 2% that they're required to that the United States uh, has been. And he said that the NATO alliance needed to be reimagined so that it wasn't the Soviet era alliance. I completely agree with him on that that but um so philip i don't think you addressed my rebuttal to your retort which is you claim that there was no daylight on policies between trump and putin i think i just outlined just off the top of my head that's without looking up anything um a few areas where there was daylight and um i uh, don't think that the reason putin didn't do anything in terms of outward aggression was because of Trump's strength. I think because in spite of their policy disagreements, Putin believed that Trump wanted detente. And I think Putin believes that Biden does not. I think that's more a reflection of what we're seeing. 800-848-9222. Nick is in Port Washington. Hello, Nick. Nick. Yes. Go ahead, Nick. Uh so, you know, my point of view is this, and, and, and it's no disrespect to you or anybody else, but I think we're looking at this the wrong way. We're looking at it as a Democrat or Republican. We are looking at both phases, both parties, in a point of weakness. Um, we have to look at it going back in the 60s the way, and I'm a Republican, the way Kennedy looked at it with the Cuba crisis. You have to confront Putin like Kennedy confronted Khrushchev. You have to play the poker game. Yeah, everybody's afraid of the nuclear. Putin is not a madman. He's not that, but he's going to play that card. Where are we strength-wise? And again, as the United States, as leaders of the free world, where do we stand? And obviously, we're not standing. We're following NATO. We have to stand. And we're not doing that. Now, we're not putting Nick, the, the uh, forces. I'm, I'm not sure why you began um, your, your remarks with no disrespect to you or anybody else. I've never said this was a Democrat or Republican issue. But no, I love but, your analogy. Go ahead. Yes, please go ahead. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um I love your comparison to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, why is it, and it sounds like you're a student of history, so I'm sure you know this, why is it that Khrushchev decided not to go forward with the nuclear militarization of Cuba? What happened? Well, for one thing, we started to ramp up. We we, we basically confronted him on it, and we were on literally – if you remember that, I wasn't born during that time, but we were basically ready to go toe for toe. You're going to shoot, we're going to shoot. It game over, and and we all know this. So if, you you if think nuclear, that is that why you nuclear, think that he didn't go forward with missiles in exactly, Cuba? Exactly. Listen, that is incorrect. Know, it's a the re- the reason, and this is a matter of public out. record, and it's a matter of history. People can look it up. The reason that Khrushchev didn't go forward with the militarization of Cuba was because uh, Khrushchev and the Kennedys had struck a deal 
whereas they wouldn't militarize Cuba if the United States pulled their missiles and their nuclear bases and their facilities out of Turkey. So it was only Kennedy's willingness to withdraw from Turkey militarily that allowed Khrushchev to uh, make sure that he withdrew militarily. That's the kind of spirit of day. All right. I I, I mean, I, I don't know why I bother not interrupting people because... I don't get the same respect from people. I don't. I just don't understand. 800-848-WABC. But I like that he brought up the Cuban Missile Crisis because what Kennedy did there is a little bit of what Biden did. You give and you get. Uh, excuse me, not what Biden did, what Biden should do. Um, you give and you get. You get. Kennedy gave by withdrawing from Turkey and he got by getting a withdrawal from Cuba. And that's what we need to see from Biden. How about permanent Ukraine neutrality, recognition of Crimea as Russian, recognition of the Donbass republics as independent? And then I think we have the function, you know, the framework of a deal. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Hackettstown. Hello there, Mike. Uh, Hi. uh, You know, uh, these laboratories, these BL laboratories go all the way up, I think, four or five. I mean, those are BL3 labs. We have these labs all over the place in Jersey and New York and every state in the union, practically. You know, they don't seem to want to corral these very bad labs. You know, not bad labs. Let's just say these labs that have dangerous items in them into one area. I mean, we can finance Area 51, but we can't build the place where people have to put these labs. You know, we could build a place. And then, you know, these companies, American companies that do this work have to pay the government, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a rent charge and we'll take care of the facility, make money for the government. But we also secure it in non-populated areas. I mean, it, it just, we just don't take care of our own house. You know what I'm saying? All right. And, well, uh, you know, go ahead. It's, I, 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 I just, there's common sense lacking. And I, the other point is, you know, this war, I mean, Putin's going into this country. I mean, because he says these people want me there, right? Or I don't want NATO on my borders. I mean, what if we went into Cuba? I mean, Cuba's not a democracy. We could say the same thing. Oh, they want us there. Look, they come across the ocean. They risk their lives to get here. We're just saving them. But we don't do that. And we don't have a good history in wars. Korea is not ended. It's a peak. You know, it's a, a peace, not a peace treaty. It's it's a ceasefire. Vietnam, yeah, you got South Korea, but that that wasn't one. Or the the whole Iraq thing, I didn't agree with. I, I didn't like nine eleven either. But to go kill more people over nine eleven, that didn't work out and and better. I mean, where did we get on that? You know, that's true. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. I don't want to make the whole show Ukraine one because. It's such a downer, and I know a lot of people that uh, stumble upon this show in the middle of the night, um, you know, like to be uplifted, like to be entertained, and hearing about the prospect of uh, all of this nuclear destruction is not exactly uplifting at uh, 2.30 in the morning. Uh, but And we will talk with Bill Burns in just a few minutes, who is going to, uh, he's going to blow your mind on a bunch of this stuff, and uh, we'll get into some lighter issues later. Joe is in Bayonne. Hello, Joe. Uh, this is John in Bayonne. Uh, John, sorry. That's all right. Uh, I always like the callers that you, you put on the spot like you did brilliantly just a couple of minutes ago. 
you know, name one of your sources, and they have so many sources, but they can't name a source. You know, I mean, what is the, he has special inside information? This yeah, guy? And, and John, I'm not expecting him. I want to be very clear. I'm not expecting him to sit there with pages of of foreign policy uh, cutouts and uh, all sorts of policy journals. But at the same time, you can't cite that as a rebuttal to what I'm saying and then have no evidence at all to back it up, in my view. Absolutely. I think that his, a guy like that, I mean, I, you know, I don't know who he is or that doesn't really matter. It seems like their sources are Google and only the first part of the first page. So you, you do a Google search on what you want to read. Well, I, I actually don't think so. I think what he claimed that Trump aides thought that they were going to withdraw from NATO, I don't think he got that from Google. I, I think he made it up. Because uh, I follow the news pretty closely, and Trump's had a lot of different aides, and I haven't heard uh, one of them publicly say that Trump was going to withdraw from NATO. Uh, so I think he made it up. I think he was so caught in the heat of the moment and trying to make his point. He's so caught up with disliking Donald Trump that he was he couldn't he couldn't spin fast enough that he made something up. And then when I asked him, "Well, where did you hear that?" he couldn't tell us. I think that's what that was a function of. That, that's very possible, too. But it, it just seems like you could search for almost anything that you want, and you'll find one or two articles on it, no matter well, what your biases that's are. That's true. You're right about Thanks, that. Frankie. And, and thank you, John. I'm guilty of that myself. Um, you know, if I have an opinion about something, I'll admit, I, uh, I and I think everybody does. Um, I think, uh, you know, what I, you know, um, have done is you go and look for an article that, Underscores your point. Mark is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mark. Yeah, hi, Frank. I listen to you, man. You know, you are spot on with what you're saying about the Ukraine. I just want to commend you and uh, Kasimatidis for uh, giving the other point of view. I just want to know, are you getting a lot of heat from, like, outside sources because you're showing a different view? I mean, like, the other side of the view on this because – you're spot on. That Victoria Newland, she helped instigate this thing in 2014. Well, I'll be honest. I have um, gotten some uh, some pushback from listeners. Some people say they don't want to listen to me anymore. Uh, some people, you know, accuse me of this or or that. But um, no, so far I've gotten no blowback from advertisers. And um, I have to again reiterate how grateful I am to work for somebody like John Katsimatidis. He has not told me to put the brakes on in the least. In fact, um, there are times when, you know, I'll raise some questions in the course of an interview and he doesn't say he agrees with what the guest is saying or what I'm saying, but he'll he'll say, oh, that was a really good interview. Really interesting. And that really, really. And thank you for the call, uh, Mark, and your compliment. It really underscores my appreciation for working for somebody like John Katzmatiz, because if you look at the collection of people that work at this station, I don't want to mention everybody, but you can Google any of us, right? Any of us, except maybe Bo Snurdly, we all have a little bit of scandal, right? Um, the most recent, obviously, and the best known is Anthony Weiner. None of us, um, w- John Katsimatidis is almost of the opinion that he doesn't care if you want someone canceled or boycotted. He's into putting on compelling radio. And if it means putting on people that have had some controversy in their past, uh, and again, I don't want to re- dig up any old controversies that 
that my colleagues or me have been involved in, but they're out there. Um, he doesn't care. And he's all for putting out all points of view. And that's one of the reasons I, I love him, honestly. And uh, I uh, am very lucky that he hasn't said. I, you know, I am amazed. And I got a nice text message today, and I'm going to break, and we'll go to Bill Burns. I am amazed that Tucker Carlson is able to do the kind of show that he does on Fox News every night. Because Tucker is basically doing some of the same things that I'm doing. And then the show right after him is a guy saying, oh, we should kill Putin. We should take Putin out. And if you watch most of what's on Fox, that's most of what's on Fox. I have no idea how Tucker, with being being on a, a network that's owned by a corporation that has so many eyeballs on him, I have no idea how he's able to get away with the kind of shows that he's doing on a regular basis. Because, um, you know, I, other than that, I don't see anybody in big media questioning the prevailing narrative. So... That's it. All right. Bill Burns is going to join me straight ahead. He is the um, New York Times bestselling author. He's written many books. We've talked to him many times before. We're going to talk to him a little bit about COVID and the ancient alien hypothesis. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Times bestselling author, and he's written a number of books. We've talked to him about several, including The Day After Roswell. He's been the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. And I reached out to Bill because it has just been way too long since he's been on the radio with us. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. How have you been? Uh, hanging in there, Bill. I, uh, I'm try- trying to keep sane in some insane times. Now, Bill, oh. for, for people that haven't heard our previous discussions, what sparked your interest in this stuff, the idea of um, extraterrestrials, UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call it, the idea of alien visitation to Earth? What sparked your interest initially? Well, 60 years ago, I mean, all the way back in the 1950s, actually more, 70, back in the 1950s, I, I actually saw over, right over Queens in New York, Forest Hills, the, um, I just, it was 53, I think, 52, 53, I saw this huge light, it's right by Queens Boulevard, um, just right across two blocks. And it was there for, was there most of the night. 
the next morning I told my father, he said, oh, don't tell anybody, it's the blacklist, and, you know, you'll be, you'll wind up with Joe McCarthy or something. So, um, but I did see it. And in in the 50s, in the early 50s, there were all the stories of UFOs over Washington, D.C. I mean, anybody can go on the Internet right now. Look at the Washington Post from July, July 17th, right around there in 1952. And there's a whole formation of UFOs over the Washington Monument. Pilots. When we were doing our um, when we were doing our show, uh, UFO Hunters on the History Channel, pilots would come back. When we would fly to different locations, pilots would come back to us out of the cockpit, and you know, one pilot waved me in and said, "I got to tell you this." And I was sitting in in a cockpit while they were flying. He said, "I got to tell you this one UFO story," and he tells me this incredible story of a UFO that shattered his plane went in front, went in the back, and then disappeared. And he said, I can't even report that to the FAA. They would take my license in a minute. Wow. Uh, it's such a shame. And we saw this recently a, a year ago. There was a, a, UFO, a UFO sighting or UAP sighting, as the current nomenclature has, on a commercial airline. And uh, the pilots uh, talk about how they're basically afraid to say what they've seen. And these are not, you know, um, one-toothed, drunken, um, delusional people. These are very serious aviation professionals. So I'm, I'm hoping that with all the increased coverage that these Pentagon-confirmed-as-authentic uh, videos have gotten, that a little bit of that stigma about talking about this stuff has been, has been removed. Do you think it has? Well, I don't think so. I'll tell you why. This is like the um, in business. There's something called the seventh shack principle, which is you will reveal information, but you're always going to keep some information secret. It's it's just a standard. I mean, there's no politics involved. It is simply an administrative way of doing things, right? You always keep something secret. It's the seventh shack. There's always the seventh shack where where nobody's allowed but you. Well, this is this is what I think is what they're doing with UFOs. You tell enough truth to satisfy folks. Like, what did they just do? What did the government just do? The government just released a statement and said, oh, we don't know what these are or where they're from. Could be aliens. We don't know. Did I lose you, Bill? Uh, we're going to try and reconnect with, uh, with Bill Burns. Basically, oh, there, I'm I, got here. I got you. Bill. Okay. And so basically, the story is that the government simply says, oh, we're going to tell you the truth. And the truth is, we just don't know. So, I mean, that's, that's the kind of story that we've been getting so far. And as, as, far, as, I'm, and as, far, as, and as far as I'm concerned, that um, they're just not saying anything. When you look at the history of this planet, first of all, you know right now that there are so many species on this planet be, um, going extinct. I think every 25 minutes another species goes extinct for a whole bunch of natural reasons. It's not nothing mysterious, but um, it, there are species going extinct. Scientists have called this the sixth extinction of life on planet Earth. And at this moment in time, we're sitting with a virus that seems to mutate and change every time we do something different to control the virus. You're talking about COVID. I'm talking about COVID. So, and, and when you realize 
when you realize, Frank, that you say, oh, it's a virus, it's really terrible. Do you know that viruses have been bombarding this planet for 3.5 billion years? If viruses were pathogenically lethal, we'd all be dead. So obviously they're not. I I think I might be lost on the point that you're making. So you're saying that this virus will or will not bring about the extinction of the current. I don't think this. uh, I don't think the virus is killing us. I think it's culling us. It's reducing population. It's reducing the people who are most vulnerable, um, especially that. But I think there's a transformation going on. I think that because I mean. The reason life started on this planet, scientists say, it's not just um, that it was a virus, that there were these two microscopic, submicroscopic, uh, single-celled animals, and one of them ate the other, and that began the whole concept of the double helix, and that began reproduction and evolution of life. That's what a lot of, uh, a lot of um, evolutionary scientists say. So I'm wondering if this is just one more, one more chain, one more link in a chain that's been going on on this planet for 3.5 billion years. And I'm just wondering how many civilizations think about this. Human beings have only been modern humans maybe 150,000 years, maybe 100,000 years. Look at all the time on this planet billions and billions of years. How many civilizations might have existed before ours? Mm. We know there was one, right? We, we know from the Bible. We know from uh, uh, ancient poetry like Gilgamesh. We know from stories of Native Americans. We know from stories from ancient cultures. There was a culture on this planet before modern civilization. It was destroyed in the Great Flood. The great flood that put water on the Sphinx, the great flood that destroyed some of the um, civilizations in Anatolia, Turkey. So how many times were there human civilizations on this planet that were here, then got wiped away, then reemerged? I'm just, this COVID and the fact that comets are from out of our solar system or plowing through our solar system, spraying water wherever they go, terraforming planets... I just really believe that um, uh, there's much more to COVID than we believe, and that somehow it's connected to the ancient aliens. Interesting. Well, so let's talk about the ancient aliens. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Bill Burns. He is a New York Times bestselling author, a regular on several uh, television shows, documentaries that deal with this stuff on the History Channel. And one of the most popular shows on the History Channel right now is called Ancient Aliens. And so many of the episodes of that show deal with something called the Ancient Alien Hypothesis, which is that uh, many, 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 many millennia ago, aliens came to this planet and planted the seeds of civilization. Is that basically the Ancient Alien Hypothesis in a nutshell? That's basically the hypothesis. And I believe that we are the ancient aliens. We're the result of that in successive civilizations. But um, terrible changes on this planet, ice ages, great floods, things like that, might have wiped away prior civilizations. 
I think there was probably two civilizations before us, probably three, and I keep wondering what's going to come after us. So um, aside from the biblical and other ancient references to things that could be considered aliens or extraterrestrials, what evidence do you see? that the aliens or extraterrestrials did plant the seeds of our existing civilization? Well, one, there are stories in all disparate cultures about civilizations before ours. In fact, on the walls of Gobekli Tepe, uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, it's at least 10,000 years old. On the walls are writings referring to the elders. If that's 10,000 years old, older than the Judeo-Christian Bible, 6,000 years old, um, if that's 10,000 years old and they're talking about elders, who are the elders? Mm. Who are the ones that built the place? They certainly were there more than 10,000 years ago. And if they're there more than 10,000 years ago, that's before the flood. So I'm thinking that maybe the essence of my own personal theory is that our planet and other planets, not just Earth, but other planets, not necessarily in our, uh, not necessarily in our galaxy, we were terraformed. There was a race very much like ours, probably human, that sent their DNA, panspermia, sent their DNA across space on meteors, on asteroids, in viruses, to other planets where they would take root. If they succeeded, that would be a colony. If they didn't succeed, go on to the next planet. And that's how I think we were terraformed. Hmm. Uh, well, it's certainly interesting. One of the things we were talking about earlier in the week is uh, something that's referenced in Genesis chapter 6, uh, a reference called Nephilim, where they talk uh. about sons of God called Nephilim and then uh, the giants. And I'm curious if you have a theory about Nephilim and how it relates to what you're saying about the alien origins of our species. I do. First of all, when you talk about the Nephilim, the verb nephal in Aramaic means to fall. So it's not as so it's not Nephilim doesn't mean giants, it means those who fell. So what they're referring to, what the Bible refers to, was those who fell from the sky. Aliens. So essentially if you wanted to abstract the story, it's aliens came to Earth, mated with native Earthlings, that created a hybrid species. The hybrid species was somehow offensive, and there was a great flood that wiped away the hybrid species, and only Noah, whose four grandparents were all human, began a new human race. That's hmm. actually the story of the end of one civilization and the beginning of another. Do you have a take on the theory that uh, aliens or at least alien technology may have played a role in the construction of the Egyptian pyramids? 
I think that there was an entire society before the flood that lived in that area that had a complete modern technological civilization. They built the Sphinx. Remember, um, Egypt, ancient Egyptians, worshipped felines. They thought that cats had a certain kind of a spirit, felines had a certain spirit, and they worshipped that spirit. And um, I heard the most incredible story from um, somebody who self-identified as a, a CIA non-official cover officer. And he told me this is while uh, this is while we were um, on uh, going from location to location. He told me that we know that our government knows that the Sphinx is not just some monument, but is a, but is a very ancient vault, and that they had a group had discovered something under the Sphinx that they wanted to recover. So they hired a college professor, young professor, and said, look, I want you to go, an Egyptologist. I want you to go there. I want you to retrieve this. Here is money. Obviously, pay whatever you have to pay, but bring it back to us because it's vital. When this person saw the kind of information, I mean, the Holy mackerel, this was ancient alien technology that was recovered from under the Sphinx. He put it on the open market. Mm. And the French wanted to buy it. Well, you can imagine. I mean, you can get people angry, but don't get those people angry. So they sent a non-official cover officer to retrieve the disc and make sure this person didn't talk about it. And you want to know who... This CIA officer gave the disc to on orders of the government. This will blow your mind. Who came to Paris to pick up the material from the CIA officer. Who? You know who it was? Who? Father Malachi Martin. No. This person almost flipped when he saw him. You're kidding. I'm serious. Malachi Martin worked for the CIA. Um, I've never heard that before. I heard that uh, from him, and I heard that from a co-author I had, Joel Martin, who knew Malachi Martin, and um, who knew how Malachi Martin died. Yeah, I mean, how you he don't... fell off the ladder with this woman um, when he was fixing books at her apartment. You, you don't generally think of uh, the CIA as recruiting writers who are Catholic priests uh, as part of their uh, their you know their endeavors, but that is especially Jesuits. Uh, that is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Bill, it is always a treat to talk with you. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time. I hope we can do this again in the next week or two and continue uh, the conversation. Give me a call. We'll talk to you. I definitely will. Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author of many books, a, uh, a bright guy and uh, someone that always gives us a great deal to think about. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
ACDC, Dirty Deeds, Dumb Dirt Cheap. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll take your calls in just a moment. Uh, still to come, we'll do the AC report next hour when we check in with Mark Colazzo. If you want to comment on anything we've discussed this far, 800-848-WABC. Maybe take a break from Ukraine. We're going to uh, revisit the Russia situation, I think, again in the 4 o'clock hour. So uh, maybe hold your powder until then. I tell you, it was an eventful day for me yesterday. Uh, my wife and I took my son to the pediatrician to get another shot. I think he got a hepatitis shot. Sorry, anti-vaxxers. But uh, he is now weighing in at uh, 13 and a half pounds at four months old, and he is 25 inches in length. He wow. d- had a rough night, uh, I found out when I came home yesterday, in that he did not sleep really at all uh, the previous night with, with his mother, and so that means he kept his mother up. And then he was in a really sour mood the whole day. Uh, his babysitter theorized that maybe he was uh, get it, getting a tooth because he was doing a lot of drooling. Uh, it's a little early for him to start uh, teething, but uh, it's not that early, so it's certainly possible that he might have been got, getting a tooth. But uh, I just got word from my wife that... Um, he he slept six hours so far. We put him to bed, um, I guess, about six hours ago, and he just woke up briefly, and now he's up listening. So uh, if you're awake, Carmine, and, you could, and you're listening, I will see you in just a few hours, and I hope you have a better day than you did yesterday. But uh, overall, um, you know, he's doing well. He's, he's healthy, thank goodness, and uh, he is doing well, but uh, he was certainly a little cranky yesterday. I'm hoping that today's better and that he sleeps well so that his mother's well-rested and his mother will let me sleep when I get home. Uh, but uh, it is what it is. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, please continue to hold after the top of the hour news with Frank Diaz. We'll give you an opportunity to be heard. Uh, a lot of stories that we're going to get to and some other stories that we're going to do updates on. And uh, when we come back, we are in the middle of Lent, so we'll discuss pizza as well. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight, the AC Report coming up in a half hour. You want to email me, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Um, and we're on Twitter as well, Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. Frank Moreno here. Tomorrow is Friday, and those of you that are Catholic probably will not be. Well, if you're observant, you will not be eating meat on Friday during Lent because that's the tradition. That's the Catholic tradition, and we get pizza here every Friday. And I last week I made a mistake. I ordered two pizza pies and one had pepperoni on it. I got one without pepperoni. It was a, a vodka margarita. I don't remember what it was, but it had vodka sauce on it. And one 
had pepperoni on it. Tomorrow, out of respect uh, to the Catholics, I will not be getting any pizza with uh, with meat on it. Now, I am a pizza enthusiast. I eat um, pizza more than I should. And during Lent, even though everybody else is sort of moving into a um, pizza, you know, pizza arena because they're refraining from steaks and hamburgers and any kind of other meat, I'm trying to eat a little less pizza because I'm trying to cut down on my carbs in general um, and use this as sort of a a 40-day fast, basically. But... I'm always interested in pizza. I love talking to people about the pizza establishments that they love. I love talking to pizzaiolos about how it's made. I love uh, different trying different types of pizza. I love reading about pizza. I love the history of pizza because for me, pizza is so much more than just a food. It's also a cultural experience. It's a historical experience. It's a way of um, – it's a great conversation topic. I love everything about it. I, I think it's one of the most fascinating foods in the history of civilization. So my colleague Curtis Lewa knows when, to how to get me to open an email. He sends me an article about pizza. So he sends me this article about pizza. And this is an article in the Daily News. Now, so much of what, it's in the Daily News online. So much of what's in the Daily News is clickbait. And this is the case with this. Now, the Daily News is a publication which has seen better days, and it's not doing well, right? So you, you they're going to do stuff like this, articles that don't have a lot of reporting but have a lot of things that you need to click. And I hate these articles that are slideshows that you need to click, 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 but... This was one of those articles, and I ended up clicking on it. The article is headlined, Staple Slices, America's 35 Favorite Pizza Chains from Giordano's to Domino's. Now, um, before I tell you what is in this article and what they say about some of these, I'm not going to go through all 35, but there were some results that did surprise me. I will tell you, I don't. I don't really patronize pizza chains. Now, when I say a pizza chain, what I consider to be a pizza chain is more than 10 locations. If it's fewer than 10 locations, I don't necessarily consider it a chain. Like there's some great pizza establishments like um, uh, Williamsburg Pizza that has three or four different locations. That's that's wonderful. I consider a chain to be something like Pizza Hut. Uh, I mean, you see the difference. Really, that's a franchise. You can open up a Pizza Hut if you want, get a license to franchise it. You can't do that with a Williamsburg pizza, which is some of the best pizza you'll ever eat. You can't do that with a Campania. Even though there are multiple branches of Campania, you can't just go and open one up. And it's not to say there aren't good pizza chains. And we'll go through what some of them are. I, in New York, where we have access to some of the best pizza in the world, including I try, I've eaten pizza in Italy, and I honestly find so much of the pizza that we have here in New York to be better than the pizza that I tried in Italy. And again, that's a, a broad general generalization. I never tried the pizza in uh, Naples, which is supposed to be the birthplace of pizza and where pizza is the the best. But I did eat pizza in um, 
in uh, Rome and some other Italian provinces, and some of it was very good, but a lot of it was not as good as what we eat here in New York. So I have always said I've never understood why anybody that lives in New York, especially a place like Staten Island, for instance, but even New Jersey, which has some great pizza, I've never understood why somebody that lives in a place like New York or New Jersey would ever need to patronize a pizza chain along the lines of a, a Pizza Hut or a, a, a Domino's. Because I, I understand if you live in, I don't know, uh, Wyoming, and there are not a lot of great pizza shops there. Not a lot of great options. Okay, you see the ad for Pizza Hut or Domino's. Why not? We'll try it. You know, you want to eat some cheese bread with sauce, they'll bring it over. But if you're in New York, where within within walking distance, you know you could find a great slice of pizza, why would you ever pick Domino's? And it, it's interesting. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis was over my house recently for some ping pong and, and wine. And... She was saying her mom, who's actually a Cuban immigrant, really likes Domino's. And I said, what? How can your mother – and I hope I'm not costing her any votes by saying this. I said, how can your mother that's lived here for decades, the pizza capital of the world, how can she say she likes Domino's? She said, well, she likes those ads. Those ads have won won her over. And sure enough, my my brother-in-law, technically it's my wife's brother-in-law, but apparently the nomenclature that the callers and I agreed upon when we discussed this is that he's also my brother-in-law. He likes Domino's because you can use the app. I've tried Domino's. I guess the last time I tried it, I was maybe about um, 13 years old. And it was good. Um, but I really tried it because I found some coupon for it, and I got it for, you know, I got a free pie. You buy one, you go in free. It was like I got the super incredible deal, and my friends and I were all hanging out in my backyard and um, in, swimming in my mom's pool, and we wanted to order pizza. And I said, oh, look, you got this deal. And it was it was inexpensive, and it was going to get there quickly. It was, it was good, but it was not nearly as good as any of the other types of pizza that – I grew up with and I've enjoyed. And since then, that was the last time that I had Domino's, but when I was about 13. And that's why what's number one um, in this list, and this list, I guess, is just listing America's favorite pizza chains. It's not listing the best quality pizza chain. So that's why when I reread what this was a list of, I calmed down a little bit because I was absolutely blown away when it listed Domino's as being number one in this in this Daily News article for America's favorite pizza chains. And this is from Dan Myers, who writes for the Daily Meal. Daily Meal. And I've read some of Dan Myers' other articles about pizza, and including about three years or four years ago, he had this article about the best uh, 150 pizza spots in all of America. And he was pretty on point. And there's some great pizza spots that he names. And we go through uh, – and and so I don't think this is some schlub that doesn't know anything about pizza. But he lists Domino's as America's favorite pizza chain. This is what he writes about it. When you're in the mood for pizza, what's your go-to? Is it a local hole-in-the-wall slice shop, 
an old-school Italian joint, a frozen pizza you pop in the oven, or do you head to a nearby chain? If you're like many Americans, a chain is your best and most dependable option, and we've rounded up to the top 35. So then it talks about Domino's. Founded by brothers Tom and James Monahan in 1960, Domino's today has more than, uh, this number blew me away, 6,500 stores in the U.S. and serves 3 million pizzas a day. 3 million pizzas a day? That's crazy. I I would never, I mean, look, I guess I would imagine because they've got the money to run all these TV commercials. Five crusts, nine sauces, eight meats, seven cheeses, ten vegetables are available and um, they that is apparently America's favorite pizza chain, according to this article in the Daily News. I'm going to link to it if you want to read through all uh, all 35 of these pizza chains. Now, again, this doesn't include real pizzerias, local pizza places, which is where I think you could find the best pizza. It's just pizza chains. Matt, Matt Blaze, do you do you patronize pizza chains at all? I I would get Domino's. Every once in a while for one reason and one reason only. What's that? They have a thin crust pizza that is more like a flatbread. So it's not like a regular pizza. But I would never, I do not get regular pizza from Domino's. I see. I would go to a pizza place. And they have like a Philly cheesesteak pizza, which is like no sauce, cheese, mushrooms, cheesesteak, steak on the pizza. And again, it's like a flatbread. So it's different. It's not like a normal pizza that you'd get at the pizzeria. But if I'm going for normal pizza, I'm going to a local pizza place. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, look, and again, in our area, I don't know why you wouldn't um, unless there's a specific type of pizza that is served from a chain that you can't get in your area. The two right. that immediately come to mind are Chicago-style pizza and Detroit-style pizza. There was one uh, Friday where I ordered pizza from a chain here. It was from Jet's Pizza, which is on this list as well, uh, because they had Detroit-style pizza. And I felt like, you know, the the floor should get to try Detroit-style pizza. And uh, there are other pizza chains that specialize in Chicago-style, like Pizzeria Uno uh, in Bay Ridge, which I was at in 2001. I was there 21 years ago. So there are, if you want to try a different type of pizza, like what you're saying with the with these these novelty slices, okay, right. you know, and, and you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm, my wife calls me a pizza snob. I don't think I am. I do judge you if you're going to order a regular pizza pie from a place like Domino's or Pizza Hut. I, I, I do. I'm, I'm sorry. And, and if you live in New York, if you live in Wyoming, if you live in Iowa, if you live in Il- if, not Illinois so much, but if you live in um, Montana, okay. I mean, it, it's probably miles to the nearest decent pizzeria and you know Domino's you know the brand fine um but I, I I'm not a pizza snob so if you want to if you want to try the novelty of a chain go ahead go for it but if you're going to make it your go-to that I just don't understand now what's interesting to me on this list so Pizza Hut is number two and I'm guessing they're ranking this in terms of national sales not necessarily quality that's why Domino's is number one and uh, Pizza Hut is number two. What n- number three is, I, I've done a number of pizza interviews over the years. And when is National Pizza Day this year? Let me look. There's a couple of National National Pizza Day. Okay, National Pizza Day is, um, we I think we missed it. It was in February. And um, so 
I've done a lot of pizza interviews over the years, and one of the fellows that I interviewed is a great pizza maker uh, by the name of Nino Coniglio. And there's he is one of the two people I've interviewed that knows the most about pizza. The other one is uh, the fellow that does Scott's Pizza Tours. If you ever get to take one of the – I don't know if he's doing them again. Uh, I know he wasn't doing it with COVID. I don't know if he's back. But um, Scott's Pizza Tours, uh, that guy is a brilliant man. I've seen a lot of his um, – he's got the world's largest collection of pizza boxes, and he's just a brilliant man when it comes to pizzas. And the other one is uh, my friend Nino Coniglio, and he is a brilliant pizza maker, and he's also something of a pizza expert. And I asked him, look, let's say you can't go to a local pizza shop. If you had to pick one of the big pizza chains, um, what do you pick? And he said without hesitation – in terms of the best quality pizza, what do you think he said, Matt? In terms of the best quality? Best quality of the big four pizza chains. Little Caesars? That's right. That's exactly what he said. He said yeah. he would t- – and I've never tried Little Caesars, but he said he would try Little Caesars, eat Little Caesars all day, every day. He said um, they also – he described the, how they make it and the ingredients that they use and the flour – and what, one of the things that he does, and he's one of the co-owners of Williamsburg Pizza, is they don't put they don't put bromide in the flour in Williamsburg Pizza, and apparently that does something. I don't know. It makes for a fresher, crisper uh, crust. And apparently, Little Caesars does the same thing. They don't add that. I think it's bromide. I hope I'm remembering it correctly. I don't know anything about making pizza, but he, Little Caesars also evidently doesn't use bromide in the flour. Um, and then Papa John's is number four. I've never tried them either. Number five is an Atlanta-based chain, which I've never even heard of, something called Mellow Mushroom. I've also never heard of number six, Marco's Pizza. And number seven, I've never heard of. I, I think the And this is a Seattle-based chain. It's called M-O-D Pizza. So, uh, And uh, number eight, I have heard of. It's very West Coast-based. California Pizza Kitchen. Uh, so so that's that's that. Number nine, I think, is interesting. And if you have a favorite pizza chain, let me know what it is. 800-848-9222 or thoughts on any of the pizza chains that we've mentioned. 800-848-WABC. Number nine is Giordano's. Now, Giordano's is something sort of similar to uh, Grimaldi's. Or Grimaldi's was, or Nathan's, Nathan's Famous. Um, where it was a very successful, um, in the case of Grimaldi's, a pizza shop, in the case of Nathan's, a hot dog shop. And they just became so well-known and so famous that they um, eventually sold, you know, sold the name and the right to franchise it. And And they have kept the Grimaldi's recipe pretty close to the original. So if you go to a Grimaldi's chain uh, store, it doesn't taste like Domino's or pizza. It tastes... Like what you used to get at Grimaldi's 30, 40, 50 years ago. Giordano's is something similar in that I think if you go to any Grimaldi's, not Grimaldi, Giordano's, Giordano's does taste like the original Giordano's in Chicago. Now, Giordano's is one of the two or three big Chicago-style pizza spots. Now, I've never gone into a Giordano's uh, uh, pizza shop but I did order for a boatload of money because I was just so desperate to try this stuff. Giordano's frozen pizza. And I had them ship it to me 
from Gold Belly, and it was very good. I really enjoyed it. I think that the two big Chicago pizza chains are Giordano's and Lumomati's. Um, so I have no doubt that Giordano's is both popular and very good because I've tried the frozen concoction. It was good. But uh, and this is one of the areas where I think John Stewart agreed with the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Chicago deep dish style pizza is really a totally different animal from any other type of pizza. It's almost not really a pizza. It's almost more like a um, a pie, like a, an actual pie with red sauce and and cheese. You, you, a lot of times you eat it with a knife and fork. It's a very different experience. It, you can't eat a Chicago style slice while you're walking down the street like John Travolta and you have it folded in, in Saturday Night Fever. You can't do that. So that's uh, number nine. And uh, number 10, you'll appreciate this, is Blaze Pizza, which I've also uh, never heard of. Again, a lot of these, I guess, are not popular in the New York area because you don't need these pizza shops in the New York area. Um, another spot that I've always been amazed stays in business in New York is number 13 on this list. Sparrow, Sparrow Pizza. Why would you ever go to Sparrow if you um, could go to a real pizza shop up the block? I, I've never understood. I was at Sparrow once 23 years ago. I thought the, the pizza was frighteningly mediocre. So 800-848-WABC if you have a thoughts on this. It does list Jets Pizza, which is the Detroit-style pizza that we got. It does list... Lou Malnati's one pizza chain, which I've never been to. And uh, it also lists Grimaldi's, by the way, which I guess is now considered a, a pizza chain because it's now spread around the country, 40 plus locations in 11 different states. And uh, and again, I haven't I've been to a couple of these locations and they do maintain the, the same style and the same good style of pizza. And so does Goodfellas, which started on Staten Island and is now branched out and is elsewhere. They do. Um, Godfather Pizza, which was Herman Cain's pizza shop, they're listed. And uh, one of the ones that I've never been to but I'm told is great is something that's very big in New Jersey, and that's Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza. And the guy who founded Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza, his name is Anthony, shockingly, his cousin is the owner of Michael's of Brooklyn, my favorite Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. And uh, he sold it, and they've sold it off to uh, a, a sort of like Grimaldi's did to a, a company that franchised it out. But I, uh, I've never tried Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza. That barely makes the list. That's number thirty-four on this list here. But that's also very, very popular. Jeff is in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Frank, you stole my thunder. Ah, but Anthony's, Jesus, the guy makes a great pie. He's a little pricey. But he makes a beautiful thin crust pie, and he also makes a beautiful tuna sandwich with arugula and stuff on it, with a little uh, lemon, a little olive oil. Well, it sounds delicious. Now, um, it, it has the quality of Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza gone down at all since they've been franchised out? No. No, it's still good. I, you know, there was uh, the one place I go to very often. And there was another place to close down. There wasn't enough business, but 
uh, during the COVID, we hadn't been here in like two or three years. They took a few items off the menu, which were very good, which were the uh, the pork chops and like a vinegar uh, vinegar marinara sauce. But uh, and they also took off broccoli. But anyway, we had the pie, and it was beautiful. I got that guy makes a great pie. I'm serious. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Um, I'd like to make a distinction between, say, Domino's and pizza. I like to do that. I, I don't consider Domino's and Papa John's and Little Caesar's pizza. I think it's Domino's, you know? So to, to Midwesterners and those kind of people, that's pizza. Okay. But uh, my uncle and my grandfather loved Little Caesar's. And if I had to choose one of those chains, it would be Little Caesars because they use Monster also. They liked it because it was cheap. You could get a pie for six bucks, walk in and walk out. All right. Well, another vote for Little Caesars, like Nino Coniglio. Mike's in Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Thanks, Frank. How are you? I'm making a living. Actually... I buy uh, Michael's sauce in uh, Kings right next by me. Michael's in Brooklyn. Yeah, I, well, I, I do too. I buy it. I, I go to the restaurant and buy it, but it's great. From the store, it's a yeah. black away. <laughs> hey, fair enough. Whatever works. Anyway, the, the Detroit pizza isn't that made in like a, a square pan? Yes. It, well, it's a rectangle. It's the one pan. that used to. I think they named that because it was used from like. With car, with cards were manufactured, they had like these square pants. Yeah, that that is my understanding. You know, one day soon we'll do a um, a pizza a pizza segment, and um, and I, I think uh, we'll get into the history of uh, Detroit style pizza. I had some great Detroit style pizza when I was in Las Vegas from a place. I I don't remember if it, I think it was Pizza Rock. Yeah, it was Pizza what, Rock. Detroit pizza. Yeah, it was, it was either Pizza Rock or Good Pie. I don't remember which one. Uh, oh no! I, I remember they, it was Evel Evel Pie E V E L. They put Evel the, pie. the cheese down first and the sauce on top of it. Yeah, and then they uh, put cheese on the crust as well. I think it's delicious. I got to be look. I'm yeah. a lover of all types of pizza. I like Sicilian. I like uh, Brooklyn style. I like the thin crust. I like Chicago. I like Detroit. I like every type of pizza, uh, which is part of my problem. I did place someone place. I used to live somewhere. We see pizza three times a day. Well, I mean, that's uh, like uh, more power to you if you can get away with it. Thanks, Mike. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Two things. Uh, number one, I was wearing your hat at um, Stop and Shop, and some lady stopped me, and she was asking me about you, and just, she listens to you too. And I told her that I'm Joe from Ron Konkama. We started talking, and she had nothing but nice things to say. A guy at my job. Oh, that's nice. Actually, Thank you. Like, Please thank her if you run into her again. I definitely will. Uh, one of my guys that I work with is like, I heard you on the radio last night. I'm like, I said, yeah, I'm always, he listens to you, and nothing but nice things to say, uh, my friend Phil. But uh, about pizza, um, I never really, I was like you, I never really went with the uh, chains. Only once I tried Papa John's. Uh, it was all right, but if you're ever again on Long Island and you're passing by Ron Conkema and you want to go to a pizzeria that's just like Brooklyn, it's called Mama Me's. Let me tell you, Frank, I've never, ever had an incident or anything. The pizzas are always fresh. They deliver them to your house. They're piping hot. When you go in there, it's quick service, and it's just like you're in the city. 
Like really? Said, have a great night, Frank. Well, thank you, Joe. And by the way, I, I do want to give it another shout-out to the guys from uh, Arthur Avenue Pizza who came in here and gave us some frozen pizza. My wife and I tried it, and uh, we loved it. And then I gave some uh, to uh, to uh, John Katsimatidis, and he told me that he and Margot loved it. Uh, so uh, they're great guys, and uh, if you want to try that, you can go to their uh, website. It's ArthurAvenueCatering.com. They just started selling it through the website. It used to be you had to go to their shop, which is actually in Westchester, and get it from there. Uh, but I like those guys uh, a lot in terms of the quality pizza that they produce. But um, 800-848-9222. Bob's in Long Beach. Hello, Bob. All right, Bob's had other priorities. Anthony's in Brooklyn. Hello, Anthony. Frank? Go ahead, Anthony. Can you hear me? I hear yeah, you. you know, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Let me get a speaker. I'm sorry about that. Um, can you hear me? I hear you, Anthony. Oh, okay, great. When I, back in 1989, I was when I was a competitive bicycle racer, I used to work for uh, Domino's Delivering in uh, Woodhaven, and they used to have people delivering on bicycles. And, you know, the people, some of the customers, they hate it. Like, you know, you get it, you know, if you don't get it within 30 minutes, it's free. Some of the people I used to deliver to, they still give it to Anthony. He'll get it to them in time, even if it's on the other side of town. <laughs> they gave it to me, and the customers hated it because, they, you know, I wasn't late. <laughs> well, hey, whatever yeah. works. If you could be the beneficiary of it, good for you. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you, Anthony. Thank you for your service as a pizza delivery person. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the AC report with my friend Mark Colazzo in just a minute. You know, he has a joint um, in uh, Atlantic City, Rhythm and Spirits, and he served me. I don't know if it's still on the menu. I'll ask him when he when he comes. He served me this pizza one time. It was unorthodox. My friend Nino, he would just cringe if I described this pizza to him. This pizza was out of this world. I'm going to ask him if they still make it. This pizza had the sauce that they would put on macaroni and cheese. It had it on the pizza. Like that cheddar cheese sauce, it was on the pizza. It was delicious. I got to tell you. And the crust was good. And I know they, uh, South Jersey's got a bad reputation for pizza, but I have found a couple of very good pizza shops in um, in Atlantic City and in and in Cape May, So, which are not places that are necessarily known for their pizza. 800-848-9222. Jim is in Afton. Hey there, Jim. Appreciate you holding. Hey. Hey, Frank, no problem. It's funny. I originally called about your guest with the uh, ancient aliens, and he, he referred to Malachi Martin. And Malachi Martin was actually a trained archaeologist oh, I know in that. Egypt. I, I know that. Before, yeah, before, before he became a priest, he was asked to, to uh, participate in exorcism. That's how he got into it. Second thing is, I'm a trained pizza man from way back when, from an Italian family in Brooklyn that owned the Sabaros. And they paid, they had a a uh, uh, pizza guy who was the best. Back in 1980, they paid this guy $1,000 a week to commute from Brooklyn to Woodbridge to the Sabaros that they owned. And fa- fast food, like Domino's and places like that, they're fast food pizza. They have frozen dough. They have conveyor ovens, which will never make an oven, will ne- never make a pizza like a deck oven with a stone, you know, uh, or, or uh, um, you know, a coal-fired pizza. Those are, those are, those are deck ovens that have a stone. 
Um, a lot of a lot of the the ingredients of pizza, like the water in New York City pizza, comes from the Catskills. That's a big ingredient that people don't realize that makes a certain type of dough. Yeah, well, that's people from you, you, New York City. Yeah, uh, well, you're right about that. And uh, but I, you know, I have uh, some friends in the pizza business. And what they've done, they used to ship the water from New York, but they have this device now called the New York Water Maker, which uh, turns water in whatever community into the same sort of chemical consistency as New York water. But, you know, I'm going to have Nino back on the show to discuss pizza. I got to think of a pizza occasion. Maybe the last, um, maybe Good Friday will do it uh, because he had some other theories as to why the pizza outside of the Northeast is is inferior. But quick question for you, Jim. Why, if you were the descendant of a of a master pizza maker, why would you open a Sparrow instead of opening your own independent pizza shop? This is a family. He was a, he was a retired New York City cop, and he op- they opened up an old school pizza place down the Jersey Shore, and then they they gathered money together, and it was strictly a money thing. They bought a, a Sparrow's franchise in Woodbridge Center Mall. Super busy. I mean, back in 1980, they would do five grand on the front register for pizza during Christmas season. I mean, a real pizza man back then. I mean, see, you got to be you got to be a real pizza man to in a busy pizza place because ovens, deck ovens, they have the back of the oven is hotter than the front of the oven. You'll notice they put the they're constantly spinning the pizza because you have hot spots. So they'll put the pizza in the back, then they'll pull it to the front. You're constantly moving the pizzas around because of the hot spots. And the stone. What and, do you, you What know, do you find is the best? T- you said uh, you were against the conveyor oven that uh, those uh, fast food pizza shops use. What do you think the best type of oven is for making pizza? It, it depends on your taste. Some right. people like thin crust wood. Wood fired pizza ovens cook at twelve hundred degrees. That cooks a, cooks a pizza in four minutes. A regular jet gas oven, like you see in most pizzerias, they're about five five seventy five. I think it is. They take about 12 minutes to cook a pizza. So wood-fired pizza cooks real fast. You know what I mean? So you have to, you have to be on top of that. Chains have, deck of, have, have conveyor pizza ovens because they're idiot-proof. And right, they got a 17-year-old right. in there that can make a pizza consistently the same way. They take a frozen dough, so they don't got to make their own dough. They take frozen dough balls. They proof them. They flatten them out. They put it in the deck oven, or the conveyor oven. It come, you know, I mean, they, I'm sorry. They put their pre-made sauce, which... Is loaded with sugar. That's why kids like it. It's like candy. Yeah, I they see. Load their sauces, I see. They load their sauces with sugar. They use cheap cheese. And, you know, it's a regular time. And it's cheap. Okay, it's cheap. well, That's so, bad. Jim, let me ask you, and I want to, uh, I have to move on here because I sure, have, no uh, problem. I have uh, my buddy Mark Colazzo waiting in the wings. If you had to pick a pizza chain, um, whether it's one of the big four or any of the other 35 that are listed in this Daily News article. And I, and if people want to read the Daily News article, it's on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan. If you had to pick uh, pizza from a pizza chain to order for yourself, right, to, just to, for the quality of the pizza, what would you pick? A lot of them you mentioned I've never had, but my wife is a hillbilly, and she's cheap. She likes Little Caesars. Little Caesars. She grew up on a farm so out in Pennsylvania. It's... I grew up in Jersey. I used to own a pizza place in Newark. I owned the pizzeria. It's very, so... very interesting that you have the same answer and your wife has the same answer that Nino did when I spoke with him about this. Nino Coniglia. We're going to talk with Mark Colazzo. He knows a thing or two about food in just a minute. But uh, very quickly, Charles in Queens has been holding for a while. So let me give him an opportunity to be heard. Hello, Charles. 
Charlo! Yes, yes, I'm here. Yeah. Fell asleep. Sorry. I don't blame you. Okay. okay. Wake up. <laughs> no, I'm listening for a while. Okay, I want to say two things. First, I'm, I, want to, I want to make a comment regarding callers interrupting. But first, I want to say I agree with you completely regarding your analysis of uh, Putin and Biden, Putin and Trump. Your analysis was exactly the one that I had. And I definitely believe this war never would have happened had – I know who Putin is. He's a thug. He's a beast. He's a vicious. He's evil. But had he been shown respect, at least a little bit, in the negotiations, I'm imagining he wasn't – he wouldn't – he may have not started the war. I, I believe that very strongly. Uh, now, what I want to say about regarding interrupting is – and I believe that you're a man of integrity and character that you'll think about it and maybe – Probably you agree with what I'm saying. When the caller is calling, I just want to show a perspective. You, you, you can wait and not interrupt because you have all the time in the world that you know you will have yeah. to say what, everything you want to say. The caller has no idea. You may, you're not doing anything wrong. That's the, the, the nature of the beast, the nature of the system. You can hang up any time after one point is made. And the caller has at least 45 seconds more to say. He doesn't know, he or she doesn't know when you're correctly, but close the conversation so he's more anxious he doesn't know well i guess that's true charles i i just hung up on him just for dramatic effect uh but i'm sorry charles i he seems like such a nice guy and a fan but i had to hang up uh, on him you know when he's making that point so uh, he's right he's right i guess uh, i can't blame the callers i've been a caller too uh and you don't know when the host is going to end the call so uh that's a fair point uh maybe i'm a little uh, i judge a little too harshly because I expect people that I'm talking to to give me the same kind of respect that I give them. Fair enough. Somebody that's worthy of your respect is Mark Colazzo. He'll join us live from Atlantic City straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the AC Report. They blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty And meet me tonight in Atlantic City This is The Other Side of Midnight. Time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in the world. Monopoly City, Atlantic City, uh, because named so because it is the basis for the board game of Monopoly. If you go to, uh, if you look at the Monopoly board, you see New York Avenue, you see Boardwalk, you see uh, St. James Place, you see Marvin's Gardens, and you see Tennessee Avenue. 
And uh, somebody that uh, has really, really uh, done wonders over these last couple of years to revitalize Tennessee Avenue specifically, but Atlantic City as a whole, is my friend Mark Colazzo. He's a developer, an Atlantic City entrepreneur, and a restaurateur uh, that has uh, a few great places all on Tennessee Avenue. Mark, it has been way too long since we spoke, either on the air or off. It's great to talk to you again. It has been, Frank. Uh, good morning. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. We were talking about pizza earlier, and um, I know, uh, uh, what would you say if you were picking the best two or three Atlantic City pizza shops? And I think you just opened a place that uh, that serves pizza as well, right? I, I did, and pizza is more polarizing than politics. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's it's crazy. So I'll, I'll leave my place, uh, Cuzzy's Pizza, out of the the polling here, and I'll, I'll give you my top three. Uh, d- definitely Tony Bologna's, which is uh, right on Oriental Avenue, which is another street on uh, on the Monopoly board. Uh, Tony's Baltimore Grill and uh, South End Pizza would be my top three in the city. Oh, I've never tried South End Pizza, but I, I uh, th- that Tony Bologna's, you know, we ordered Tony Bologna's for my big New Year's Eve Eve party uh, in December, and a lot of people had never tried it before. They were blown away by it. And these are a lot of North Jersey and New York people who come from places where they're known for the pizza, and they were just blown away by the uh, Tony Bologna's. Um, how is, uh, how? so I know Cuzzy's is new, right? Your Cuzzy's Pizza Spot? Cuzzy's is, is fairly new. We opened uh, over the summer. I think we opened in uh, July. Maybe it was beginning of August. But, yes, it's new. I mentioned that uh, maybe it's about two, three years ago now. That I, I think I was at Rhythm and Spirits with you uh, one time, and you brought out this pizza, and it was a really creative pizza that had almost like the sauce from a macaroni and cheese on the pizza. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, so we have uh, we have our famous macaroni and cheese, and it's a four cheese blend, and we make a pizza out of it with parts uh, our version of like buffalo chicken. So it's a fried chicken, it's the mac and cheese sauce, and it's uh, some hot sauce. Is that still on the menu at Rhythm and Spirits? It is, yes. Oh, all right. Well, so uh, Mark Colazzo, uh, so you have um, you have Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, you have uh, Rhythm and Spirits. You have Bar 32. You have Cuzzies. These are all part of, um, you know, these are all on Tennessee Avenue and what's part of the Orange Loop. Now, for people that aren't familiar with Atlantic City, why is it called the Orange Loop? So we have Tennessee Avenue, we have St. James Place, and we have New York Avenue, which are right next to each other. And and we're all working together to revitalize that little section. And they were the orange properties on the Monopoly board. So we've we've kind of coined it the Orange Loop. And now people come down and hang out on the Orange Loop. So it's called the Orange Loop because those are the colors on the Monopoly board, right? Correct. And it's great that the town, you know, just adopted the the color of the board and sort of, you know, em- embraced this, uh, you know, this 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 moniker. Yes, yeah, it's 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 great. So, you know, I started this project, I guess we'll call it, uh, about six years ago now, and I was in my old restaurant, which I don't think you ever were in. It was it was called the Iron yes, Room. Yes, I, 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 I was in the Iron Room, absolutely. Okay. 
And one night I was talking to the staff after they closed. They were they all came out for a shift drink and some of them I had known for a while, some of them I hadn't and I was asking them all where they lived and they were all in their their late twenties and early thirties. And none of them lived in Atlantic City proper. You know, they all lived in Ventnor or Brigantine or Galloway and, and your guests that don't know those are all the, the surrounding towns of Atlantic City. And I said, well, you know, why don't you guys live in Atlantic City? And, and they said, there's nothing to do. And I, I kind of looked puzzled at him. And I said, well, what do you mean there's nothing to do? I said, there's there's so much to do. And they said, well, well, what do you like to do at night? And I said, I like to go out to eat, have a bottle of wine, go home and watch the Golf Channel and go to bed. And they said, well, then there's everything for you to do in this town. But there's nothing for us. And what they're looking for is uh, a concentration of amenities where they have uh, walkable things to do and start at one bar and end up at another bar and have where they live, have their coffee shop nearby and have the yoga place that they practice yoga at and uh, the place where they get their hair cut and, and all these things. And what most towns have is a main street Atlantic City really never had. So. This started as kind of a way to hopefully give Atlantic City a main street. And with the help of the staff that I have and other developers and local government and and obviously, most importantly, the, the customers who support us were, were trying to give Atlantic City that main street that it hasn't had for, for 50 plus years. And, and how's it working out business-wise? I'm not asking you to disclose your uh, your your financial uh, documents here, but are you are you uh, making money here? Are you keeping your head above water with this grand plan to give Atlantic City a main street? We are. We're we're doing very well. We're making money. Um, you know, COVID was a, a a little bit of a setback in some regards, but but helped us out in some other regards because two of the restaurants we have had some great outdoor space that we were able to capitalize on. But but since we've opened, we've we've been busy and we've been making money, so it's it's been really well. And I have nobody to thank for it besides the staff and the great customers that come support us. Well, that's wonderful, and I will tell you, whenever I've uh brought uh, people fr- to, from wherever to any of your spots. And I've been to uh, Rhythm and Spirits. I've been to Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. I've been to Bar 32. Everybody's blown away. And I even bring a lot of people that visit Atlantic City often, but who don't traditionally step out outside of the casinos and uh, I, to your spots. And they all say the same thing. They say, I can't believe I've been coming here for years and I've never had a meal or a drink outside one of the casinos. I always just thought it was kind of run down and there was all this crime and everything like that. But they always thank me for exposing them to spots, not just like yours, but spots like yours, which show that there's a lot more to Atlantic City than just the uh, the casinos. Now, Mark, I know that uh, Atlantic City, even when it was at its worst, it, when it was at its nadir and you had all sorts of hotels closing, all sorts of casinos closing and uh, people losing their jobs and people moving out of the town because they could no longer afford to live there. Even when Atlantic City was at its worst, it was always busy during the summer. And even at its worst, it was always a very vibrant 14-week town. 
Now, this time of year, the winter months is usually when it's a little trickier for Atlantic City businesses. How has the winter been treating Atlantic City in general and your businesses specifically? Well, I'll say that overall in the last few years, the the winter has shortened. Uh, It used to be we slowed down in October and we picked up uh, right after Valentine's Day. Uh, this year, we managed to be busy up until December, and really, it slowed down in December, I think, more because of Omicron than than the city slowing down because of winter it, itself. And once Omicron started to pull back, the business picked up, and since we've hit Valentine's Day, it it feels like we're, you know, we're in spring, about to hit summer, and people are here, and the place is alive. Well, that's wonderful. I'm uh, happy to hear that. And uh, as um, my wife tells me, as soon as uh, as soon as our son makes a habit of sleeping through the night, then we'll make our return engagement uh, and uh, one of our patented uh, Atlantic City binges. Now, you live in Atlantic City itself, right? I live on Pacific Avenue, another Monopoly property. And would do you think Atlantic City is a is a decent place to live? I mean, you're you're a husband and a father and a business owner. As somebody that wears all those hats, does Atlantic City offer everything to you that you need? Well, my so my kids are are older and and out of the house, so it's a, it's a little bit different. But I think it's a great place to live. I I live uh, right across the street from. Ocean Casino, I'm adjacent to Hard Rock Casino, and I wake up every morning and I have a view of the sunrise uh, peeking out over the Atlantic Ocean every morning. So to me, I'm I'm in heaven. Now, as somebody that spent a lot of money and a lot of time investing in Atlantic City as part of this grand vision of uh, having a main street and rebuilding what's part of the what's now called the Orange Loop do you think that Atlantic City is still a place that's worth investing in, whether it's commercial or maybe even buying a uh, a residential property to rent out? Do you think Atlantic City still has some, you know, some bright days in its future? I, I do. I'm, I'm very bullish on Atlantic City. Uh, there, there's a few things that it has going for it. And obviously the biggest is the the ocean and the boardwalk. Uh, there's there's very little oceanfront property in the the northeast or let alone the country that you can get that's a, as affordable as you can get in Atlantic City right now. Uh, the boardwalk still gets about 20 million walks per year, so you you've got this incredible foot traffic, uh, lots of visitors. I know some developers that have been buying up. Uh, townhouses on Ocean Avenue, which is the block on the other side of Tennessee Avenue, and they've just been making Airbnb apartments out of it, and they've been killing it. And I, I meet with them all the time, and I joke with them that they're going to make more money than me on this whole Orange mm-hmm. project, and and they are. So uh, there's there's definitely ways to invest in Atlantic City and ways to make money, and look what's happening at Bader Field. There's the a group ready to plunk down, you know, over $2 billion on this project. Well, so tell folks about that. I, I mentioned it last week briefly, but if people didn't hear uh, this segment last week, explain to folks what's happening at Ray, Bader Field as part of this redevelopment. So they want to build a, a racetrack for, for guys that have uh, classic cars and, and race cars. 
They want to have a mixed-use development where they have 2,000 condos and townhomes and shops and restaurants and an amphitheater and places to park your car and race them around the track. And it seems like a, like a really amazing, exciting development that'll bring a lot of residents to the city, which is, is part of what we need and bring money. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great plan. And, and I hope the mayor is, is able to put it all together and pull it off. I, I hope so too. Uh, that uh, sounds like sounds great, and there's a lot of other exciting projects that are being talked about: the water park at Showboat, and a number of others as well. All right, Mark, we're just about out of time, but before I let you go, I want to do lightning round with you on a couple of your favorite Atlantic City spots because a lot of folks listen to this uh, this um, this segment, and they're always looking for different places to try, different places to stay, different things to do. Excluding any of the places that you own or have a stake in, if you had to pick, what's your favorite restaurant in Atlantic City? Whew, that's a tough call. Um, I would say Cafe Twenty Eight Twenty Five. Uh, same criteria. Favorite bar in Atlantic City? Uh, the Piccadilly. The Piccadilly. Piccadilly Pub. Yeah, are they still twenty four hours. No, no. Ever since COVID, they've they've scaled back their hours a little bit. But uh, Irish Pub is still twenty four hours, right? Irish Pub is, yeah. Whenever your guys throw me out at four a.m. or so, I have to go across the street to the Irish Pub to get my uh, my four thirty a.m. dose of bourbon. So I'm sure a lot of uh, late. Thankful. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, it's not a far walk. Exactly, exactly. And what's your favorite casino to play in? I know you said you um, you uh, live right by the ocean in the Hard Rock. To the extent that you do play, where do you go? Well, I don't gamble, but I can speak for my wife, who somehow achieved this uh, high roller status because she gets the, the red carpet treatment when she goes. She's a, uh, an ocean casino gambler. O- ocean is a fun spot. Mark, it is always a treat uh, to chat with you. I hope I get to see you soon. Yeah, next time you're in town, make sure you give me a call. We'll grab a drink. 100%. Uh, see Mark at the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. It's a great spot. He's got Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, Bar 32, which is kind of a chocolate-themed bar and restaurant. Really great. They have a prohibition theme. They serve drinks in teacups. It's really neat. Rhythm and Spirits, which is a great restaurant. And I haven't been to Cuzzy's yet, but Cuzzy's is a pizza spot that I'm looking forward to checking out. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Lose the other side of midnight straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Our phone number is 800-848-9222. I can't believe uh, three hours of this show have just flown by. A lot of stuff that I haven't gotten to, and uh, I will get to as much of it as possible within the next hour. No guests next hour, so I'm going to have a chance to go through a lot of these stories that I've been meaning to uh, to comment on, but I do want to thank our owner, John Katsimatidis. He has uh, taken out a terrific ad in the New York Post today. 
highlighting the fact that uh, this show is the number one Nielsen-rated show in the 12-plus category in New York City, Monday through Friday, the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, and there's a decent picture of me in there. I think it's decent. I mean, I don't know that there are any decent pictures of me. And it's got a nice quote from John in there that says, when the world keeps me up at night, I stream the Frank Morano and Curtis Lewis shows. Uh, And, yes, there is an ad for uh, some other guy that's on the weekend in this time slot as well. Apparently, he's number one as well in this time slot. But uh, in all sincerity, it's Curtis and me. And uh, the ad says Saturday and Sunday, 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, I don't know if that means the lineup has changed a little bit because what what it was was Curtis was on 1 to 5 on Saturday and then 1 to 6 on Sunday. So, I mean, if he's on for five hours both days now, that's great. Or I'm not sure if it was just simpler to put that than to, you know, specify, oh, 1 to 5 on Saturday and 1 to 6 on Sunday. But, uh, but that's great. So uh, congratulations. And um, it's not mentioned. So that's in today's New York Post, that ad. And John also shared that ad on his Facebook page, which I've done as well, at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And a big thank you to John for taking the ad out in the paper. But I was going through some of the numbers with our boss Chad Lopez, who usually gets here around this time yesterday, and um, evidently Dominic Carter, also number one, uh, Rita Cosby, also number one, and Bill O'Reilly, also number one. So you, you have from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., this radio station is number one a.m. or FM, which is, I don't know that we've had that since we've been a talk station. Eight straight hours, right? Am I right? Eight straight hours, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Eight straight hours where we are the most listened to radio station in New York, AM or FM. So that's um, pretty impressive. Uh, hats off to all my colleagues. Maybe I'll invite them all on next week. Maybe we'll do a, a day. We'll, we'll call it number one day. Although I don't think O'Reilly's going to want to stay up till 1 a.m. Maybe we'll pre-tape O'Reilly. We'll make Dominic and Rita stay a little late one day next week. And uh, we'll, we'll celebrate our accomplishments and give them an opportunity to thank you for making us number one. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Couple of quick updates. Number one, um, we were talking about the baseball situation a couple of days ago. I, I don't know if it was a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. Honestly, doing these hours, those of you that work at this time know uh, it, it's like you're you're living in this temporal nexus where you just you don't know. It, it, time is so weird. I can't tell you what date it is. I can't tell you what day it is. It's just you're in this area where you're. it's sort of a no man's land. Uh, so I think it was a week ago, maybe, that I was talking at length about the baseball lockout when they had canceled opening day. 
Well, um, some news from yesterday. Major League Baseball is there's still no agreement between the players and the owners. Major League Baseball's lockout continues, and the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manford, is canceling more games, two more baseball series as these talks stall. So now, April 14th is now the earliest possible opening day. That is a real bummer for those of us that like baseball fans. And you know what it is? It it screws us, the Met fans, most of all, because it looks like we were actually going to have a decent team this year. Um, I mean, I I was really excited about this, this Mets team, and all of a sudden, it looks like um, I don't. It's not going to be much of a baseball season. I was talking with Jeffrey Lyons the other day, who's a film critic, but he's written a lot of um, you know he's written a lot of books about baseball, and certainly a big baseball fan. And uh, he was saying he thinks that the whole season might end up being canceled. Wouldn't that be just awful? Uh, I would hate that if that were the case. Also, uh, remember when I told you about the fella that got the first heart transplant from a pig and some people were upset because he had killed someone? Basically, in a bar fight, he had stabbed someone to death and the family of the person that he stabbed was was not at all happy. And um, David Bennett, who controversially got that heart transplant... He, uh, from a pig, died two months after the groundbreaking experiment. So hopefully this doesn't mean they didn't give an exact cause of death, only that his condition began deteriorating several days earlier. So I'm not sure if he died because it was a pig heart or if it was, you know, for some other other reason here. But uh, 800-848-WABC couple of you have been patiently holding before I get on to these these other stories that I wanted to bring to your attention. So let me get to you. James in Brooklyn, hello. Frank, what's going on, man? How you doing? Oh, I, I'd like to think I'm doing okay. I, I uh, Before you said uh, you said that you're not a pizza snob, right? I, I 1,000% am a pizza snob. And I, and I got to ask you a question. You, you had stated before, you had said something like, um, Brooklyn pizza, you know, you got your Detroit pies, you got your Chicago pies. People up in Connecticut got that style, but then you said Brooklyn pies. I got to be on. I got to ask you. I grew up in Brooklyn, and every single pizzeria that I go to in Brooklyn, none of them taste or look even remotely close to each other. So, from your perspective and your lens, what exactly is a Brooklyn pie to you? Because well, all my favorite places, they don't even seem like they're in the same borough. Well, I I think you know Staten Island's a little bit like that. Two, but uh, in that you have a lot of different influences. You have a lot of uh, Neapolitan-style pizza. You have even some Connecticut-style pizza. But um, the Brooklyn-style pizza, as I understand it, and I don't pretend to be an expert, and I am going to have a pizza expert on this show. Well, I'll schedule it for next week so that people can call in the pizza question. And I know Scott. Oh, you know Scott. Scott Great. Uh, So I'm going to maybe I'll have Scott and Nino on uh, the same, you know, the same show, which would be a lot of fun. But as I understand it, uh, the Brooklyn-style pizza is sort of a descendant of the New York-style pizza. In, and one of the key differences is it tends to be cut into six slices rather than eight. That's part of it. It tends to be a, a little bit thicker 
than the standard New York pizza. It uh, features, and um, so that's that's I, I think that's it. That's that's the two big differences: is it's six slices and it's a thicker crust than uh, most of the New York style pizzas. My mind is blown right now. I have never stepped inside of a pizzeria in Brooklyn and saw six slices on a pie ever. Well, I think both. Um, and, and it also has to. Uh, I think both Totono's, which is great in Coney Island. Totono's is over on Coney Island, exactly. Yeah. And, and to Defara's, I think they both do a six slice pie. It might. Be, you know what? They probably do do the six slice pie, but it's probably the smaller version. There's probably the different size over there because I'm in those two pizzerias all the time, and I probably don't even pay attention to the smaller size. They always get the large style pies. But, you know, like saying before, the Tono's doesn't taste anything like L&B's or looks like L&B's. Right. Well, that's L&B's right. L&B's doesn't taste or look anything like J&B's. And then it goes down to, like, I don't go by, like, borough, so to speak. For me, I always break it down where the style of oven, right, conventional gas, you have your brick oven, and then it goes down by fuel, whether it's wood, right, or you're going to use coal, which gives a completely different flavor and taste. And then you get your different styles. You've got your Neapolitan now, which is a huge uprising in New York. You got your Sicilian style pies and so on and so forth. But like, I don't know, like I, I still don't, I'm not making a connection with the Brooklyn style pizza. Cause like I said, every one of them that I ever grew up in is completely different experience. Well, that's fair. Look, and, um, uh, you know, we'll we'll do a, a segment on Brook on pizza in general when we can have some real experts. I, I don't. I'm masquerading as a pizza expert here, so I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> pretend to be that. But thanks for the the call, James. There's some great spots in Brooklyn. Uh, that is for sure. Additionally, one thing I did want to mention here. Do you remember? And uh, this is kind. Of, you know, it's kind of a sad story. But do you remember the story? Of all those folks in upstate New York that died in the limo crash. You remember that? Very sad story, especially young people. And it was an accident that did not need to happen. And it was one that uh, basically occurred because you, it seemed like the company had taken some shortcuts and it was not something that should have happened. And there were all sorts of safety protocols that were ignored. And this limo company, um, they, you know, they were not doing the right thing in terms of adhering to the proper safety protocols. Well, the fellow who had um, been responsible for that is a fellow by the name of, uh, I don't want to miss, I'm going to mispronounce it in spite of my best best efforts, he was the limo. The owner of the limo company was a fellow named Hussein. That was his last name. I believe his first name was Shuhad Hussein. And this happened, I guess it's four years ago now. It feels like yesterday. And this person, um, Shahed Hussein, was an FBI informant. Did you know that? That, that aspect of this story did not get a lot of attention. And this notorious FBI informant who owned this unsafe stretch SUV limo involved in this crash upstate that killed 20 people following years of reporting by the, New, by the uh, Times Union, which is a big paper, in the capital region, and a recent article about this in New York Magazine, 
Congressman Paul Tonko, who's a congressman in upstate, wrote to the FBI director, Christopher Wray, on January 31st, asking the Bureau to reveal anything that could shed light on how this particular informant, Shahed Hussein, was able to skirt responsibility for this deadly crash and was allowed to run an illegal an illegal limousine service in Saratoga County for years. And the most interesting thing in the world happened yesterday. And how this story did not get more attention, well, I, I don't want to say I'll never know because I do know there's a lot of other things happening now, especially with this war in Ukraine. But this is an important story. 20 people died solely because a company didn't have the required safety protocols and ignored warnings. So the FBI tells Paul Tonko, the congressman, we're not going to say anything about this guy. What? We'll never talk about the informant tied to this limo crash. What? I mean, that is crazy. The FBI is rejecting a plea from a congressman. Now, the FBI's budget is set by Congress. The FBI is a creation of Congress. They are rejecting this plea from a congressman to simply discuss the relationship that these agents, the FBI agents, had with Shahed Hussein. Now, this guy owns a limo that kills 20 people and is an FBI informant? We ought to know everything there is to know about him. The FBI ought to come forward. They they should have volunteered, which is not what the FBI generally does. They should have volunteered to come forward and disclose everything that they know about this guy. Here's his FBI file. Maybe you have to redact some names if there are uh, forthcoming cases that he was involved in. Uh, These are the types of cases that he helped us make, whether it's terrorism or mob cases or financial crimes, whatever the case may be. The FBI should come forward, and yet they're stonewalling. They told the congressman that they're not going to reveal any information about their dealings with Shahed Hussein. Um, Many of the victims were from Paul Tonko's hometown of Amsterdam. And so this letter that was sent from the Bureau to Tonko a few weeks ago is just a devastating blow to the families of these victims who've been seeking answers about how this tragedy, one of the worst U.S. highway transportation disasters in decades, could have happened. So um, I think this is a real shame. Um, I, I mean, I have been very troubled at some of the crimes that have been committed by cooperating witnesses and FBI informants over the years. And I, um, I continue to be, it seems like if you want to get away with murder in this country, the best way that you can do that is by being either a cooperating witness or a confidential informant for the FBI. Because it seems like those are the folks that are most able to get away with it. And we see this again and again. And it's a real shame. And 
I hope this is a wake-up call to Congress that they, uh, they, they do something about reining in the supervision of these informants because these informants, in, it seems like they've been able to create their own mafia while working under the protection of the FBI. And um, Congress ought to put a stop to this. They ought to demand some accountability. How many informants are there out there? Who's paying them? How much are they being paid? Do we need to cut these lavish deals? How how often is it the informants that are creating the crime to begin with? You remember that supposed plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan? There was no plot. It was created by an FBI informant or multiple FBI informants. They create the crime. The Supreme Court just heard a case about that as well. Again and again, we see that the people that are the impetus for the creation or the beginning of this crime are either FBI informants or um, undercover agents. And this is, to me, very, very troubling. Um, So what did happen on Tuesday was Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, was testifying before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence when Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who also represents upstate New York, she appeared to take Director Ray by surprise by asking him about Shahed Hussein and his involvement in the, um, you know, in this Skahari limo crash. This is what she said. I believe that this deadly limo tragedy, the biggest transportation tragedy in this country, could have been avoided had we addressed the acts, the illegal acts of this FBI informant. And the FBI owes families answers. There's been extensive reporting on this issue, and she's right. And she asked Ray, who said he's generally aware of the case, if the FBI allows undercover informants to commit crimes unrelated to an FBI sting or investigation. Um. The FBI does allow informants to participate in criminal acts with its knowledge, such as drug deals, fake terrorist plots, in order to get targets to commit crimes that can be prosecuted in court. In general, informants can be prosecuted for crimes they commit outside the parameters of an FBI investigation. So this was the question. Does the FBI allow an informant to engage in criminal behavior that is not related to the case, in this case, the anti-terrorism cases or investigations that they're informing on? Yes or no? That's the question. Very simple question. Ray hesitated and told Stefanik the answer was, quote, somewhat detailed and lengthy and required him to go into some depth and that he had to tread carefully. He said he would have his staff get back to her, which clearly did not sit well with the congresswoman. Look, we know the answer. Yes. Yes. The FBI does allow you to commit crimes as long as you're willing to be an informant. Ask Whitey Bulger. Right? Ask the uh, Grim Reaper, Greg Scarpa. Well, you can't but because he's dead now, but if he was still alive, you could. Ask Frankie Blue Eyes Sparacco. Of course they do. Of course they do. And it seems to me here, and I applaud what 
Paul Tonko and uh, Elise Stefanik are doing here and trying to get some answers from the Bureau on this, it seems to me that this guy was able to operate with impunity. And Paul Tonko is a Democrat, Elise Stefanik is a Republican, so this is not a partisan issue at all. This guy was able to operate with impunity outside the bounds of the law because he was willing to give the FBI information. And because of that, 20 people are dead. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment on this. That's 800-848-9222. Well, I have some bad news for some of you who don't like spiders, and I hope my wife has gone back to bed, because an invasive species of spider the size of a child's hand is expected to colonize the entire East Coast this spring by parachuting down from the sky. That's the word from researchers at the University of Georgia. These large Jaro spiders, millions of them, are expected to begin ballooning up and down the East Coast as early as May. Researchers have determined that the spiders can tolerate cold weather, but are harmless to humans as their fangs are too small to break human skin. This Joro spider is native to Japan, but they began infiltrating the U.S. in 2013, concentrating in the southeast, specifically Georgia. They fanned out across the state using their webs as tiny, terrifying parachutes to travel the world with the wind. You imagine that? They use the web as a parachute. So uh, Andy Davis, who's the author of uh, this study and a researcher at uh, Georgia's uh, School of Ecology, he told Axios that it isn't certain how far north the spiders will travel, but they make it may make it as far north as D.C. or even Delaware. It looks like the Joro could probably survive throughout most of the eastern seaboard, which is pretty sur- uh, sobering. So there, if you see one of these, I guess you should kill it. Because they are invasive. They're bright yellow, black, blue, and red and can grow up to three inches. They traveled across the globe on shipping containers, similar to what happened with the bubonic plague. Their life cycle begins in early spring, but they get big in June, and they're often seen in July and August. They're named for Jarogumo, a creature of Japanese folklore that can shapeshift into a woman or spider before killing its its prey. Researchers say there's nothing we can do about it. They're coming and they're they're harmless, at least to humans. But I'm not sure why they're referring to them as invasive spiders if they're harmless. I guess that means they're harmful to plants. Uh, I've always been a big advocate of not killing spiders. I, my wife, I drive her crazy because she hates spiders. And um, she, when she was a child, she used to call spiders Franks. So I don't know, I'm not sure what it says about the psychological issues going on in our relationship that she married someone with the name that she gives to an arachnid, which she despises and is fearful of. But I'm sure Freud would have a field day with that one. That being said, I always tell her, don't kill the spiders, leave the spiders up because they'll kill the bugs. They'll eat the bugs and we'll have fewer of these bugs running around. That argument goes over like uh, a lead balloon. 
with her. But um, these the so well, these Juro spiders, I guess I might have to do a little more research. And I guess if this is what the experts are telling us, I may have to kill my fair share of Juro spiders. Because the last thing we need is more invasive species in our area. Are we right? Although, again, they said it could probably only go as far north as Delaware. But it seems like these little buggers are pretty resilient. So who knows? They may make their way here eventually. So, all right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we are covering. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fan. And uh, you can join the uh, Facebook group at uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Uh, John Scandalios was kind enough to post that ad that um, John Katsimatidis is taking out in today's New York Post uh, with the image of Curtis and and me. So uh, that was nice. And you, you, there's a whole bunch of people posting about Ukraine stuff here. I did want to say um, on the Ukraine front, one one item, well, let me just mention both of these now because we have some time here, no guests, so uh, I'll mention both of these now. YouTube, YouTube is taking down their, the Oliver Stone video on Ukraine. Now, I like Oliver Stone. I like many of his movies, but I realize that many of his movies are, um, you know, th- there's some problems with them. They're not always the most factual. There's he takes some liberties, and uh, and that's fine. He he's a filmmaker, but he's trying to do you know some good work. And I've met Oliver Stone. You know, it's funny. I met him. Tony Lyons was here. He's the publisher of JFK's book. And I met him uh, at a, a party at Tony Lyons' house that he was having for Oliver Stone. And it's funny how it all comes back to Russia. Oliver Stone had just done this series of interviews with Vladimir Putin. And he wrote a book about it, and he did this special for Showtime. And I think it's still on Showtime. I think you could watch it. Although, watch it quickly, because you can bet that they're going to take it down quickly. But... Um, you know, the real reason that I was interested in going to that party at Tony Lyons' house was because I wanted to meet Professor Stephen Cohen. I had interviewed Professor Stephen Cohen so many times on the radio, but it was almost always by phone or by Skype. I'd never gotten to meet him in person. And I was just such an admirer of his work on Russia. And uh, I wanted to meet him in person. So I went to that, and I was glad I did. We had a great time. And I met a lot of other interesting people, and I met Oliver Stone there. But Oliver Stone has a documentary called Ukraine on Fire and and a a sequel to it. And it has been taken down from YouTube. Now, why not let people watch this and make a decision for themselves about whether they want to watch this or not, and they can make their own decisions about it. I I just hate this level of YouTube censorship. It just drives me crazy. And I am not on the uh, social media site Rumble, but I guess there's video on there as well. Rumble has decided in response to what YouTube is doing 
that they are going to feature Oliver Stone's documentary on its platform. So I'm going to retweet this along with Rumble's statement. So they put out a statement that says, YouTube removed Oliver Stone's documentary, Ukraine on Fire. We believe the public should decide what it sees, not Google executives. We're, and I, by the way, I completely agree with them. We're proud to announce the producers uploaded the film to Rumble, enabling anyone who wishes to view it. So if you want to watch this uh, YouTube documentary or this Oliver Stone documentary, which is too hot for YouTube, too controversial for YouTube, I have just retweeted it at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Lastly, last thing I'll mention, Luke Oil. We're seeing all sorts of people boycotting Luke Oil gas stations because Luke Oil is a Russian company. And what's worse, lawmakers in New Jersey are voting to suspend Luke Oil licenses in uh, Newark, New Jersey, with some city council members citing the company's Moscow base. People are calling for boycotts of Luke Oil on social media. Luke Oil operates gas stations in 11 states, mostly in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Uh, However, this is not going to this is going to have so much more of an impact on Americans rather than on Russians. If you look at most of the 230 Luke Oil branded gas stations in the United States, These are mostly franchises that are owned and staffed by locals. And the gasoline sold at the two Luke Oil stations in Newark comes from a local refinery operated by Phillips 66, a U.S. company based in Houston, Texas. They buy their oil from Texas. They get their gasoline from Texas. These idiots in Newark are suspending the licenses of, of, of businesses that are owned by Americans, American immigrants, by the way, employing American immigrants that buy their oil, not from Russia, but from America. Um, this is crazy. So CBS News spoke to one of these guys who he's the idea of having his business license yanked left one franchise owner confused and concerned for his 16 employees. He said this. Roger Verma is his name. I stand with Ukraine, and I'm in full in support of Russian sanctions. However, I'm baffled and confused how shutting down an American-based small business owner is sending a message to support. It doesn't hurt Luke Oil, and it doesn't hurt Russia. It just hurts the people that work there. And this is just idiotic. I mean, people love to make these grand gestures, these politicians in the Newark City Council. Oh, let's go after Luke Oil. Well, you're going after an immigrant business owner and 16 immigrants trying to make a living for themselves. Uh, and I have been hearing this from all sorts of. And by the way, a lot of these Luke Oil franchises, franchisees, they didn't even they didn't even choose Luke Oil. These were franchisees that never chose to be associated with Luke Oil. A lot of them were Getty or mobile stations that were purchased in bulk by Luke Oil years ago. So the gas that they're buying is from U.S. suppliers. Luke Oil just slaps their brand name on it. This is horrible. 
And uh, David Brighouse had an interesting piece on um, on uh, Tap, which is like a neighborhood news website. And he wrote he, he's a I, I think I think he does something with the gasoline industry. And he talks about how gas stations have had a real tough time during the pandemic and how gas stations are so often a pathway to achieving the American dream for immigrants. And these are people who are going to be victimized if the government decides to shut these businesses down. Their their employees are also proud New Jersey residents of these Luke Oil branches with about 120 stations in the state. Their closure is going to mean, if they do close, between 600 and 1,200 people instantly out of work. So the CNN had a good article on this as well. Uh, titled Boycotting Luke Oil Would Sting U.S. Gas Station Owners More Than Russia's Oil Company. So I I think this is just stupid. Uh, I think people should do a little research before they start boycotting things, personally. Um, We'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute, but uh, Frank is in Lodi, New Jersey. He uh, Oh, $1,000 minute. I keep saying 15 seconds of fame. We'll do $1,000 minute in just a minute. But uh, Frank's in Lodi, New Jersey. He has some insight onto the, into the spider situation. Hello, Frank. Hi, how you doing, Frank? I'd say I'm about um, a yeah. 7 out of 10. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't have enough coffee yet. But, uh, yeah, I went to uh, school many years ago uh, in um, Farmingdale, and I uh, went for horticulture and in that entail, go take an entomology study of insects. And, um, you know, this is the same thing again that always happens time and time on container ships coming not only from the area where they said the spider came in, but like, you know, the, the gypsy moth problem that decimated thousands of acres of, uh, um, you know, forests and stuff. Same thing, an insect came in. And at first they didn't think it was going to be invasive, but then it was, and it killed millions of, of, of trees. Now, this thing could be invasive in a way that maybe it can, it, it'll kill beneficial insects, maybe insects that pollinate uh, good uh, products that we maybe use for food, or, you know, or maybe, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's invasive in a way that, you know, like I said, it, it, it's, it's not to our advantage as, as humans. But in, in, in this area, there may be no, no um, um, you know, a, a, a natural type, um, you know, predator. Well, I, so, uh, again, it sounds like you're a lot more familiar with this than I am, Frank. This is all new to me. Uh, I only know what I'm reading, uh, but I'm going to be I'm going to be keeping an eye out for these spiders. In fact, I'll keep all eight eyes out for these spiders uh, come the spring. Bernie is on Staten Island. Hello, Bernie. Uh, hello, uh, Oliver Stone is the name of John Barrymore's agent in the great comedy 20th Century, written by Ben Heck. Oliver Stone oh. plays a big part in the movie. I didn't know that. Is that right? Uh, so I, I've never seen that film. Is is it worth checking out? Oh, yes. It's a great comedy with John Barrymore and Carol Lombard, written by Ben Heck. It's one of the first comedies ever written by back in the 1932 or 1933. It's a great, great comedy. You should watch it. I'll check it out. Thank you, Bernie. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Mike, were you on the air already? 
No, not today. All right. It must have been another not Mike today. in Pennsylvania. I today, don't I, Frank? Yeah, well, well, but, uh, there was another Mike in okay. Pennsylvania uh, calling oh. in. So, all, oh, okay. All good. Well, I'm Mike from Pennsylvania, but I come from Brooklyn. Okay? Well, okay. Here well, we so be it. Now, here, we, here we go, Frank. So, first of all, these congressmen, even people when they vote, they never really do their research and find things out, you know, before they hit the level or get into a protest. Second of all, yesterday, the fellow who said when you gave him the question, when do you lose your turn at the dice table? And he said when he rolls snake eyes. He's correct. No, he's not. If he rolls snake, listen, Frank, if he rolls snake eyes when he first gets the dice, he loses his turn. No, you don't. If he don't. You lose your bet, not your turn. Okay, I'm going to have to research well, uh, better. M- Mike, let me, let me tell you. So, and I'll make you, I'll let you say whatever you want on the subject of craps or Ukraine or whatever. But uh, when you when you first start shooting, uh, that's called the come out roll. If you roll a right. seven or uh, or an eleven, everybody, 11. yeah, well, you everybody that's on the pass line wins. If you roll a two, a three, or a twelve, everybody that's on the pass line loses. But your turn doesn't end. You lose your bet, but not your turn. You want to know something? You're right, Frank. Now, now you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Mike, you're there's right. so little that I know about. Craps is one of the few things that I know a little bit about, unfortunately. Uh, the hard way I've learned that. Okay, buddy. I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, thanks, thanks for ahead. calling, brother. Appreciate it. Cheech is in Howard Beach. Hello. Yo, cuz, listen, I heard read about this a long time ago. Isn't uh, Al Sharpton one of those FBI uh, confidential yes. informants? Yes, He was crying in the paper that time. I'm not a rat, I'm a cat. Remember that? Yes, I remember. Well, you know, Al Sharpton's very good at, at rhyming, but he was indeed an FBI informant. And, you know, for years when Al Sharpton, you know, look, look, there are so many people in society now that are worse than Al Sharpton that it's almost gotten to the point of, uh, all right, there's a big, um, you know, a, God forbid, a, there's a, a police shooting. And you hear about all these uh, racial arsonists that are running to the scene. Uh, oh, Hawk Newsom is coming. You flip out. You see this person is coming. You flip out. And then you hear Al Sharpton is coming. Oh, you've. Al Sharpton has all of a sudden become like a calming presence at these things. But when Al Sharpton was in his heyday of hell raising, everyone would always ask the question, how does this guy stay out of prison? And that's, I think, part of the answer, because he was an FBI informant. And also his tax evasion, too. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is people would always say, well, how come Al Sharpton doesn't have to pay his taxes? I think uh, that that is that is a big part of the reason you're not going to throw somebody in, um, you know, somebody in prison who was who was in, an FBI informant. And Sharpton was getting away with the same thing that this guy Shahed Hussein was getting away with. You got that right. Cause. Yeah. Thank you, Cheech. All right. Uh, we're going to do the thousand dollar minute, by the way. Uh, there was an interesting article. Maybe we'll do this on a future episode of the Racket Report. There was a gangster years ago, and the Smoking Gun reported this eight years ago. There was a gangster years ago, Genovese mob family soldier by the name of Joseph Pagamino, who Al Sharpton knew through his sports promotion dealings. And Joseph Pagano was very close to Rodney Dangerfield, of all people. 
And Rodney Dane, Pagano once told Sharpton, who then told the FBI, um, Pagano once told Sharpton a story that Dangerfield loved to tell about how he'd been pressured by a mobster who wanted a cut of a nightclub that Rodney Dangerfield had owned. The mobster demanded to know whom Dangerfield was with, which in mob parlance means who you're associated with. And so Dangerfield said, what do you mean? I'm here with my brother. No, I mean, who's your rabbi? Rabbi Horowitz. And then, you know, Dangerfield mouths off to this gangster, so he gets socked in the mouth. And then uh, Dangerfield, I think, then proceeded to be, he would pay protection money to Joseph Pagano, who was a mobster that Al Sharpton was also associated with back in the day. Dangerfield had such an interesting life. He worked as a door-to-door aluminum siding salesman and... And nobody knows this, and I'm a fan of Rodney's, and I don't hold this against him. Again, most of my friends have some sort of criminal history. Um, uh, Rodney Dangerfield was busted in 1955 for taking out federal loans in the names of his customers. So Dangerfield would sell people aluminum siding, and then he would take out loans in their names. So it's very interesting that uh, he and Sharpton were associated with the same mobster. $1,000 minute straight ahead. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. All you have to do is be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, you'll get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Yesterday I heard from a woman named Margaret who said that she called in during the $1,000 minute, but she was the first caller, not the seventh caller. So maybe if you're thinking of calling now, maybe wait a half a second. And you'll be the seventh caller instead of the first caller. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Boy, that's the story of my life. No respect. No respect. Hey, folks. Sid here. Bernie and Sid in the morning. My friends at NJ Diet. Spring is just around the corner. And just because baseball season isn't starting on time, you don't have an excuse not to start your own spring training. You can get yourself back into game shape before the warmer weather because it only takes 40 days to lose a contractually guaranteed 20 to 40 plus pounds with NJ Diet. NJ Diet's program starts with bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your hair, saliva, and blood work. Then NJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen going to help you keep the weight off the rest of your life. You'll be fully monitored to make sure you're burning fat, not just losing water. You'll also get the doctor's personal email and phone number. NJ Diet is all natural, no shots, no hormones, no prepackaged foods, and no surgery. NJ Diet is close by in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, or from home with live online video consultations. 855-5NJ-DIET. That's 855-5NJ-DIET. Or go to njdiet.com and lose the weight for good. That's njdiet.com. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
One lucky contestant to try and win a thousand dollars. Gordon from uh, Canada, who had been a contestant before, tried to sneak his way in. He tried to calm. Uh, he tried to con and then charm Molly, but uh, we're not going to let him do it. You got to get pretty. You got to get up pretty early in the day to get up earlier than me. And I get up so early that I get up yesterday. That's how early I'm getting up, folks. So no one's getting up earlier than me. It is though time for. Other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Ah, yes, and let us meet today's contestant, Teresa in Massapequa. Hello, Teresa. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well, Teresa. Uh, Teresa, why are you up at uh, 4.44 in the morning? I don't even know. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, it's fortuitous that you're up and you're able to answer these 10 trivia questions and you're able to do it quickly. Have you heard this segment before, Teresa? Yes. Okay. So if you answer a question correctly, I'm just going to move on to the next one so we can move through them as quickly as possible so that you can get to all 10 questions in 60 seconds. You ready to go? Yes, I am. Okay. The timer is going to begin after I ask you the first question. What day comes after Sunday? Monday. What's something that babies sleep in? Chris. What do caterpillars turn into? Moths. Okay, we'll take it. In casinos, what game is also known as 21? Blackjack. What is the capital of Connecticut? Mm. Uh. Mm. Uh. Mm. Oh, God. Uh. Oh, my goodness. Uh. Well, I can't think I, of any place in Connecticut. Uh, well, you know, it's so funny. I can't think of any place in Connecticut. Well, I, 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 I hear you. Have you ever been to Connecticut? Yes. Where Where did you go? Um, again, not sure. Okay. All right. Well, it couldn't have been. Uh, I'm totally stumped. Totally stumped. Frank. Okay. Well, I guess. Um, I guess. Uh, I guess it was not a memorable when, trip. Now, um, when, the, when you tell me the answer, I'm going to lose my mind. All right. The <laughs> the the correct answer, the capital of Connecticut is 
Hartford. Uh, I would have never got it. Oh, really? Oh, so you're not going to lose your money? No. Well, maybe not. Now, now there are there are caterpillars that turn into moths, but I, I and so we we gave you credit for that. But I I'm, I was surprised that you didn't say what I thought was the more um, the more obvious answer, which is butterfly. Why did you pick moth instead of butterfly? I don't know. I was thinking larvae. Okay. I was thinking, you know. Well, again, there are caterpillars that turn into moths, so it certainly uh, certainly counts. I remember when I was in kindergarten, or kindergarten I collected some moths and uh, hoped that they – I put them in a jar, and I hoped that they would turn into beautiful butterflies – and they turned into the ugliest-looking moths in the world. It was really gross, really terrible. <laughs> All right, Teresa, I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to give you a consolation prize, okay? Awesome. Thank All right, you. talk to Molly. She's uh, an engaging person. Now, um, by the way, if you ever get a consolation prize, or if you just buy something from the new WABC store, we have new, brand new, The Other Side of Midnight merchandise uh, you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. You can search my last name, Morano, or you can search The Other Side of Midnight. I hope you do what Frank in Glendale did. Frankie in Glendale played on this uh, this show the other day. He didn't win, but he got a consolation prize, and he posted a photo of it on social media. So that's great. Go on social media, maybe even in the Facebook group, and show yourself wearing some of this swag. We have hats. We have uh, mugs. We I don't even have most of the merchandise, and um, I have a couple of them. But we we were keeping one travel mug here, uh, the other side of midnight travel mug here, and we were using it to you know we figured it would be fun to have guests pose with it to post post on social media and so forth, and somebody stole it. We don't know who took it, but somebody took it. So um, if you want to uh, buy some merchandise from this program. It's kind of a neat souvenir. And you saw what happened with Joe and Ron Konkuma. He was wearing my cap the other day, and it was a conversation starter for somebody that he ran into. Same thing happened with a couple in Virginia, well, with a guy in Virginia. He was wearing the cap, and he met somebody else uh, that was a fan of the show, and the only reason they knew is that they both listened to the show, even though they were in Virginia, because he was wearing the cap. So, Wear the cap proudly if you get the cap, but if you're not into caps, they have uh, sweatshirts, they have T-shirts, they have all sorts of cool stuff. And send us a photo. Post it on social media. Join the Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters and send us a photo. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Henry is on Long Island. Hello, Henry. Yes, hello. How are you? Um I have a question. Basically, I had heard that uh, there was some uh, points on the table in, in uh, regarding Ukraine, which could stop the fighting, which had to do whereby, uh, uh, you know, the um, Putin could actually save face. Right. And they could they could stop the hostilities. Right. And these points had to do with. Uh, right. I, I mentioned uh, this earlier. Uh, it had to do with yeah. uh, recognizing Crimea as Russian. It had to do with uh, recognizing the independence of the two Donbass republics. It had to do with right. uh, pledging never to join an international bloc like NATO or the EU. And it had to do with um, with demilitarizing. Those are the four points. Right. And the interesting thing there was that 
I, I think that uh, Ukraine never really wanted to, the government never really wanted to or stated that they really wanted to join NATO, and I think they're pretty much already in agreement with the point of not joining. Well, I, so I, I mean, I, I, it's very tricky because they said that right before it looked like the invasion was going to happen, formally withdraw their application to join NATO. Uh, but I agree right. with you. I mean, th- Putin did not need to do this. And um, and thanks to Henry. And, and Noam Chomsky, for what it's worth, said that um, he thought that in some respects Putin was playing into Washington's hands by going about it in this violent manner. But um, I don't know. It's I mean, it's such a shame. I mean, seeing these people dying, seeing these people flee their homes, it's just such a shame when probably the end result is is going to be the same as if we had just had the Minsk Accords that were negotiated back in 2015 or 2016. It's just everything about this is tragic. Everything. And I hope this is a sobering lesson for future policymakers, especially when it comes to foreign policy. 800-848-9222. Time now for the 77 WABC clip of the day. Uh, This is a clip from the Bernie and Sid show where they talk about what's happening with Vladimir Putin. Talk to him. Who's going to talk? His, cut, cut his throat. Right. I mean, That's the only, do. maybe one guy, and I doubt this, but one guy that would be worth the discussion is Xi Jinping, only because of the whole China-Russia relationship and the kind of the brotherhood those two have, and what's at stake. I would imagine Ping can maybe get through to Putin, but we're kind of past that at this point. We're past yeah, no, the point no, of talking. They they are have, they have a mutual enemy, which is us, of course, the United States. And uh, Putin can do no wrong at this point uh, in, in Xi Jinping's eyes, if you ask me. Um, well, look, I disagree with some of the things that those guys said there, but whatever. We're all entitled to our opinion. So be it. All right. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame next. If you want to be heard on any subject, could be a subject that we've covered, could be a subject we have not covered. Uh, you can give us a call at 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 15 seconds of fame, straight ahead. W.A.B.C. Talk Radio 77, W.A.B.C. Dominic Carter, entertaining and informative. It's increasingly starting to look like a dangerous situation, frankly, for the United States in terms of do you continue to stay back with sanctions? How does all of this play out, folks? Dominic Carter, weeknights at midnight, just before the other side of midnight. Talk Radio 77, WABC. Talk Radio 77, WABC.
you, Andy B., who gave us this song. By the way, who left this this cup of tea in here? I, was that Dominic? Was that Rita? Or was it Lydia again? Her, Lydia's shoes are still here, by the way. She still left her high heel shoes here. I don't understand it. Do you know whose tea this was? Seriously. I have no idea. You have no idea. I have no idea who sat over there last, so. Well, Dominic did, but I didn't see him drinking well, any Dominic, tea. Dominic sits where you're sitting. That's like on the other side. because well, I moved it over there. Oh. oh, oh you know oh. what? I'm starting to wonder. Maybe it was Dominic. Because when I got a cup of coffee tonight, he said, oh, I'll walk with you. I'll get some tea. Is it possible that he took this tea and then left it half consumed in the studio? <laughs> I wonder. We'll get to the bottom of it. We got cameras all over the year. The story you're about to see is true. Mm-hmm. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Now, we didn't change anybody's names. All right, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Frankie in Glendale. Congratulations on the WABC ratings, Frank. You're doing a great job. Thank you. And thanks for that cap again. What customer service. And a shout-out to my Kumba out there in Ronkonkoma, Joey. Steve in the Catskills. How you doing, Frank? Great show. Shout-out to the Democrats again. They should be ashamed of themselves. And Governor Yokel, you're a joke. 60, Frank. Jay in Cincinnati. Football will break your heart. Baseball players go on strike. Flat track racers never do on strike. Godspeed, Steve McQueen. Peter in Pennsylvania. Hey, can somebody please at the station tell Deb Valentine that the country north of Ukraine is Belarus. She insists on calling it Belarus. Belarus. Where does she get that from? Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank. Dr. Sky the other day told me that the Skylab is going to come across the sky at around 5.07. I'm camped out and I can't wait. Seven more minutes. And finally, Leo in Manhattan. Well, um, let's make it Charles in Queens. Yes, I want to, I'm going to say about the FBI and honesty. Decades ago, Rabbi Meir Kahana was assassinated by an Arab. There were witnesses, but the FBI insisted it's not him. Because they were following him. I think I think he was one of the sleeper cell. Years later, it became obvious. They admitted that it was him. But for years, even though there were witnesses, they insisted it was not him because they had their own agenda. Thank you, Charles. So I wonder if Charles in Queens is actually Larry in Brooklyn. We'll investigate. Deb Valentine and the WABC Early News is next. Frank Moreno. Good day. WABC Radio is proud to celebrate 100 years. From October 1st, 1921, to music radio, to talk radio's crown jewel, worldwide and beyond. And WLIRFM Hampton Bays. The rooster for your morning. All the news you need to know. It's the WABC Early News on 77 WABC. Welcome to the 77 WABC Early News. I'm Deborah Valentine with your news, sports, business, traffic, and weather. Here's everything you need to know. 
The top five at five. The Pentagon has halted the arrival of Soviet-built MiG-29 jets to war-torn Ukraine, despite NATO approval. Death and injuries as Russian military forces bombard a children's hospital in Ukraine, despite a temporary ceasefire for evacuations. Intelligence officials in the U.S. are warning that Russian President Vladimir Putin could resort to nuclear warfare. New inflation figures are due out this morning. The White House admits they are expecting an uptick, blaming in part Russia's war. 